There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Hey, a movie! Yeah, we're gonna be a movie! Starring everybody and me! There'll be heroes bold, there'll be comedy, and a lot of fuss that ends for us real happily. Oh, didn't see you there. Hello. Ah, yes. Good evening. And welcome to a masterpiece edition of Triple Feature. Tonight, we celebrate the cinema because cinema is an event. Yes, it is an art form of the highest quality, one that should be savored delicately, swirled around the brain as one swirls Merlot in the, across the palate to be appropriately analyzed and dissected. Speaking of Merlot, waitress, bring me your finest vintage. <laughs> Very nice. Next yes, only the finest in the Rattledge household that I could find in my fridge at 10 o'clock at night. Well, one does what one can. So, Robert, we are here to celebrate the cinema, the theater, and we were... Yeah, drink. Thank, uh, thank you. Good, my good man. Go to bed. <laughs> no! I must be on podcast! <laughs> Get out of here, we're fancy. <laughs> All right, so why are we doing this tonight? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, Chloe Zhao's The Eternals dropped. You should be careful with that. Twitch doesn't like you drinking on camera. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, grape juice. There we go. Uh, I have water. We can all pretend that it's not vodka. The joke, joke, of course, being I don't drink, so it is clearly water. Okay. Well, Chloe Zhao's The Eternals dropped on Friday, and that allows us to potentially discuss one of the theoretically... Leave the the bottle. (laughs) One of the theoretically celebrated up-and-coming quasi-artur directors going in the world today. And this also spawned out of a conversation that you and I had. It's been kind of an ongoing, almost meta uh, discussion about the state of film. Mm-hmm. in some particular respects as your dancing monkey continues to prattle <laughs> around you should tell him the parable of the organ grinders monkey at some point at some point uh and I, I wanted to be able to make my case fairly clearly here so if you'll indulge just for a moment now I have all said, that silliness out of the way yes mm-hmm. i have said uh very recently and somewhat publicly that i i have lamented the state of film now, this is not to say that good films do not exist. This is not to say that everything that gets a wide release is a pile of crap. A lot of it is. But that's that's just the law of averages in some respects, quite frankly. My lamentation is based not so much that the cinema is dying. I don't think that's true. It is the, the bifurcation, the fork in the road. Up until the mid to late 90s, you had your blockbuster outliers. 
you had your high quality art house features. These, this is not news, but there was a thriving, very healthy middle ground of wide release film that was also not bad. That could, that was, that thought was given to, uh, that where people cared about the production, so on and so forth. And my current lamentation is focused around the fact that I think that quality of film is dying. If I might make a, you and I somewhat famously mentioned five, six years ago on a podcast, you couldn't make Dune today. <laughs> and in 2016, that was true. Uh, Dennis Villeneuve in 2021 made a very pretty darn good Dune movie. Rather than looking, but I might pause it, rather than looking back forward, let us look backwards. I don't think in contemporary cinema you could make The Lord of the Rings. And have it be what it is supposed to be. There's no way a con there's no way the the contemporary landscape of cinema would support it. You would either need to cut it down and make it more art house, or you would need to cut down all the character moments and the acting and get to the get to the fighting more. And everyone would wonder why Gandalf didn't throw fireballs. What's funny about that is that almost became true of the original production. It really did, and. I think in large part it existed because of the moment in time at which it was created. Mm -hmm. I don't think you would get anything like the original Lord of the Rings trilogy today if it were to be made today uh, for the theater. Uh, I, I mean, Amazon's going to throw a pile of money at it to try and make it into a prestige uh, television series, which you know, God bless. Good luck. Mm. But that is kind of, we're, we're losing that in the scope of cinema. We are losing the, middle ground of wide release film that is also thoughtful and cared about in the production process and not designed to be purely disposable popcorn crap. You know, I took my kids to go see Ghostbusters over the weekend. And in 1980... A, wonder, a wonderful decision. And in 1984, and I was thinking about this, Throughout the 80s, especially if you watch the documentary on Netflix, the films that made us, how many movies got made throughout the 80s and in the mid 90s that were not meant to be blockbusters, but were not B movies. They were just middle of the road, mid budget feature films um, with famous actors, but not necessarily uh, mega box office draws. Yeah, and Will, that's Will, another Will, thing we've lost. Will Smith won't come along till later, but like there was, like I think about Michael Douglas, and I think it's Kathleen Turner and like Jewel of the Nile and Romancing the Stone. You know, I think about <laughs> Ghostbusters with Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and um, Harold Ramis. You know, who were Saturday Night Live players, and it would have been another I, movie together. I think about uh, the, ironically enough, considering it features one of the actors we'll be discussing tonight, The Mask mm -hmm. of Zorro. With mm -hmm. Antonio Banderas, Anthony Hopkins, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And how one of the things that you talked about, I don't always necessarily agree with your assessment of the state of film, but I think the point that you hit on that I do agree with is the middle-of-the-road, mid-budget feature film is been has been relegated to streaming services, cable television, other outlets besides the theater. And so... When, when you open up the proverbial newspaper and you decide, I'm just going to go to the movies and see what's there, your choices are 
big loud exploding thing. Other big or, loud exploding thing. Or sad piano the movie on one screen at one o'clock in the afternoon behind the door that says beware of the leopard. And if you're lucky, you might get a comedy that's about 30% likely to hit. So that's one of the things that we wanted to talk about tonight, in addition to focusing on three Oscar award-winning and or nominated feature films. I believe they all they all won something. Um, two of which actually were sent straight to streaming services. Nomadland went straight to Hulu, mm-hmm. though it did have a run in theaters for the, you know, so it could... Enough to qualify it for the Oscars. Right, enough to qualify for, for, um, for, for awards. And then Mank went straight to Netflix. The only one that had at least a limited release in theaters before it was available PVOD or currently on Stars is The Father. But it, it's an interesting thing because it used to be your prestige pictures, your Oscar winners had to be, you know, they would get an initial theatrical run and then a second run close to Oscar season. Yeah, that was very common until very, very recently, actually, you would see... a. F- when Oscar season came around, you would get a bunch of these that were re-released to wider audiences. There will be blood was one that I famously, I caught on second it's second time through because mm. it was, it was in my area for a weekend. I seem to recall on its initial run. And then once the Oscars came around, once the nominations came around, it got re-released and I was happy to go see it and witness one of Daniel Day Lewis's most marvelous performances. I know Pulp Fiction got two runs. Um, and it was funny. I think the story of Pulp Fiction was they were going to release it, I think, over the summer. And they were like, why don't you release this closer to Oscar season? Because this this looks like it would compete. And you know, at that point, Quentin Tarantino was not the Quentin Tarantino we know today. He was still somewhat struggling. Reservoir Dogs um, was big for him. But was it the huge hit that Pulp Fiction would become? No, not by a long shot. And I don't think he even gets credited on True, True Romance anymore. Probably not, even though he should be. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, we can sort of pepper in more lamentations about the state of the theater industry, but I well, but it uh, is some. So go ahead. Get back to your initial question about how we arrived mm-hmm. here. There was that, yeah. so I get I get to make my case in this particular instance in a setting that makes sense, rather than having to try and dovetail us into something else where the conversation is not as. We, uh, we can't do this on Tuesday when we talk about Eternals. I mean, we could, but we're not going to. We lose we're doing two of the people on the conversation. <laughs> we we really would. Um, the other thing that kind of brought this about was the last uh, the last couple of movies we've reviewed have been pretty bad, <laughs> like really pretty bad. I mean, I'm not here to insult anyone that enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's an argument for the overall quality of those films. And you had kind of pitched the idea, hey, Chloe Zhao's got, she's the one directing Eternals, and Eternals is coming out. So how about, and you had said that you'd been trying to get through Mank, had tried and failed multiple times. I I watched it on vacation, which was a bad idea. And said, pick another one from this last crop of Oscar contenders, you know, and we can do a triple feature discussing the higher art of cinema to kind of compare and contrast our normal (laughs) fare. And I was amenable to that. So here we are discussing the higher art form of cinema. So let's get into the big Oscar winner. I believe Nomadland actually won Best Picture. I have it it up right now. Um, 
It did. Okay. Yes, it was the likely front runner for best Oxford pitcher, which I believe it's it, which it won. Um. Wow. Yeah. Here it is. The list of accolades by Noma. I believe Chloe Zhao won best director, but don't quote me on that. Uh. Let's see here. Da, 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 da. Jesus Christ! This won like everything. It won a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> there we go. The Academy Award. It won best picture. It won best director for Chloe Zhao. Won best mm-hmm. director. Uh, uh, Frances McDormand won Best Actress. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. This is based on a book. It was, uh, I can't believe this was only nominated and didn't win Best Cinematography. And then Best Film Editing. What won, hey, remind out. me what won Best Cinematography? Uh, on, that you year. The, you have, hang on, you have the wrong list. Let me look it up. No, 20, I got it. So it's okay. uh, Mank. The nominees were Mank, Judas and the Black Messiah, News of the World, Nomadland, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven. I can see the argument for Mank when it comes to sure. cinematography. It it has some strikingly good shot selection. It's just not as they're they're very different. Nomadland is very broad and nature based, and Mank is much more uh, done in the style. It's shot in black and white, so it's done in the style of a black and white movie in that respect. And it's a lot more close sets. So yeah, I can see the there's an arguments for either one of them. All right, so Nomadland, which came out in 2020, uh, I believe when it was released, it went straight to Hulu. And then again, it had its, um, yeah, Searchlight Pictures acquired the worldwide distribution rights for Nomadland in February 2019. It had its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival, September 11, 2020, and screened at the Toronto International Film Festival on the same day. Uh, At Venice, the film won several awards, including the festival's top honor, The Golden Lion, at Toronto, the film won the People's Choice Award. It is the first film to win a top prize at both Venice and Toronto. Um, okay. Uh, in association with Searchlight, film at Lincoln Center held exclusive virtual screenings of the film for one week, only beginning in December 4th, 2020. The film's initial release date before Searchlight delayed it to February 19th, 21, due to concern to the COVID-19. It was released in IMAX theaters July 29th, 2021, with a wide theatrical and drive-in release in the United States on February 19th and streaming on Hulu the same day. There we go. Finally got there. All righty. Uh, and that's where I watched it on Hulu. So what is this thing? Nomadland. In 2011, Fern... Nomadland is... Do you want me to... Oh, go ahead. Be my guest. Uh, you'll probably have to correct me on some of the finer points of the chronology here, but Nomadland is essentially following Frances McDormand's character of Fern, a homeless woman whose husband passed away uh, after not long after he was laid off after when the, the uh, gypsum mine that he worked at in the city of Empire in Nevada closed down and that entire city wound up drying up and blowing away like a tumbleweed. It follows her life for a period of time as she lives out of her van. Uh, she spends some time doing odd jobs, working seasonally at Amazon, uh, working in, for various national parks, uh, acclimating to the lifestyle of living out of your van down by the river. <laughs> Had to do at least one. I don't even I don't even care much for Chris Farley's humor, but I couldn't let that one go. Uh, and really, that's ki- and it's also that's really all this movie does. Is we follow Fern around for a bit as she goes to a convention in the desert of people who live of the uh the transient community 
there is a burgeoning nomad, a modern nomad way of life happening in the United States. People who um, it, it speaks to the financial woes, um, the, the chasm opening up between the uh, the people who make a lot of money and the people who are the working middle class who are no longer can afford middle class. Um, there's something that the the wire talked about, which is how the the middle middle class was dying. Um, and that was 20 years ago. So you can imagine what, what this film was like. Uh, it talks about the, you know, the idea that in something that you and I have talked about before, that you know, the person just kind of graduating high school and getting a job and being able to take care of a family and buy a house is virtually impossible now. Oh, yeah. If you are not a skilled laborer of some kind, skilled and bonded laborer, like a plumber or a carpenter or electrician, or you are not a college graduate, um, it, is, it is difficult, not impossible to live the American dream and people and those financial realities for people where that's how they had been living. And suddenly those jobs dried up or, or went overseas and were replaced by technology. Um, well, in, in, this, in this, in this instance, the gypsum mine closed because the right. demand for sheetrock went down because we stopped building things. Right. Well, I, and I think that all, but that was a direct result of the crash of 2008 where a ripple they, effect. Yes. Well, there was, tons of building that was going on leading up to that mm -hmm. that was that was part and parcel of the housing boom that caused the, the crash yeah um and so yes we stopped building because we had overbuilt by that point mm -hmm. and so the, the 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 economy crashes building stops there's no demand for resources involved in building anymore and those industries start to contract and in some cases go away entirely so in any case um so there are people who I mean, the loss of home, the loss of income, the loss of way of life is traumatizing. And some people find it difficult to try to bounce back. So it, it, one should not look at the nomad population as, well, it's just homeless people. These were people who were actively deciding they were going to live on the road. Um, and and they were there were ways of going about making that happen. And some people were just trying to figure out how to bounce back from it all. And then there's people like Fern, and that's the reason why I'm bringing this up. Fern, specifically, her character is stricken with a bit of wanderlust. It's something that she talks about. Uh, there's a, there comes a point where her van um, breaks down and she doesn't have the money to fix it. And her sister just won't send her the money, which is what she wants. So she goes and visits her sister and her husband. And there's a conversation about, it was never really about even being married or anything else it was always about what was out there and her husband was out there but then she reflects upon that saying there were times i wanted to leave because i wanted to go back out into the world and see what was out there and i couldn't because i was married to this guy and i loved him but while the comfortability of house and home can and is alluring and something that i think to a degree she does reflect upon and miss she is also taken by this idea of living on the road and being free and not being confined which is one shared by many people and that's what the film talks about yeah uh i think it took me a while to figure out why this movie bothered me okay why did it bother you well i, I need to start with the uh i i need to start with this is not necessarily the most objective of criticism of the film Okay. So I, and that's one of the reasons I, it took me a bit to figure it out because I try very hard to separate 
as much as possible my pers my purely personal reactions and experiences from the discussion of film craft. Was it Francis McDormick buck naked swimming in the river? No. Or in the creek or whatever that was? Because that was jarring for me. I was like, wait a minute. Why is she naked? I mean, if you would like a discussion of the symbolism inherent there, and I can give you one, but... No, I want you to stick to your original point and never mind my silliness. Uh, it needs to be noted about this film that it uses a... I won't say it's a common trick, but it's not an uncommon trick. Mm -hmm. a, I think the majority of the actors... Uh, not might be a majority, if not certainly a plurality, are not actors as such. These mm -hmm. are real people playing themselves on camera. Yeah, this has a very documentary feel to it. In places it does, and I think that's part of the reason. And th again, this is a thing that certain directors will do at times for various reasons to varying degrees of success. The Outpost uh, does this with a bunch of the military personnel that are played by these same soldiers who were in that firefight. Obviously, it's anchored by real actors, but there's a lot of the real soldiers that were there. Uh, one of the first examples I remember watching was a movie starring Matthew McConaughey and Jack Black called Bernie, mm -hmm. which was about a uh, it's about a true crime case, uh, the killing of a woman. And kind of what happened, and there's a lot of interviews with the people of this town where this thing actually happened, just giving their opinions on it. And it's it's not a documentary, it is a movie, it's a dramatization, but they just have these people play themselves, and there's a lot of that here. Mm -hmm. Like, the majority of the other nomads that she meets are real nomads. Again, there's a there's at least one major exception here. Quasi uh, romantic interest is obviously an actor seen yeah. him in plenty of other things, but uh, the, I believe the leader of the, uh, the, the YouTube guy, the one who gives all the tips and hosts the convention, mm -hmm. I believe that's him. Um, a bunch of the people that she is seen working with uh, at, at Amazon are just, those are just real people. And I don't say actors aren't real people, but you know what I mean? We all know actors aren't real people. I shouldn't even insinuate that. Moving scenery. That's <laughs> what they should be. Uh, and I think that partially contributed to my reaction to this. And there's segments of this movie that I had to, I was profoundly bored by. And I, I don't mean that as a shot at the directing or the story or any of that. It just, I remember watching this. I'm watching this going, okay, can we move on? And I, I had to stop and figure out why am I having this reaction? Because it's not self-evident that that's what I should be. That's how I should mm -hmm. feel about this. Well, the movie, the, hang it on. takes a while to get to any kind of central conflict. It does, but I think the reason that I was having that reaction is fairly... Um, I don't get to say this a whole lot about... Hollywood films or films in general, but I know those people. Like, not personally, but a giant chunk of these conversations that some of these people are having about the lifestyle is stuff I've heard my dad say. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I don't need the the, the, the wide breadth of your father's history, but <laughs> give, me to, give me the relative points in 50 words or less. Oh, my dad's always had something of a romantic notion about living in an RV. Okay about not being about being able to go and see the you know, wonder of nature and just move around do what he wants to do that kind of stuff 
Wanderlust is real. It is. And so I, I've heard that. I've heard other you know, similar conversations. I think I had to kind of put myself in a different mindset to appreciate why people reacted to this movie as the way they did. Um, because I imagine to a lot of people, especially a lot of, for want of a better expression, city folk. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that derisively. I mean, if you grew up in an urban setting, and it's not a cultural thing, this is purely geographic. Like if you grew up in a big city, then the cinematography here and some of the shots are going to blow your mind. The you know, driving through a tree in Redwood National Forest, mm -hmm. the... The let, topography let me, of the Badlands. Let me tell you something. This is a gorgeous country for those of you who take time to drive through it. It really, and I think this is one of the reasons I was a little bit nonplussed by some of that. Is I've been to all those places, mm -hmm. not all of them, but most. I've been to Badlands. So this was not I, a feature that took you to a strange and wonderful no, place. No, not okay. at all. I mean, I can look out my window right now. I mean, it's dark, <laughs> but hypothetically, I live in the Rockies. I've mm -hmm. got gorgeous scenery. I don't that's not a that's not a selling point for me and, as such what i find what i struggle with your take on this film um is for me i couldn't oh gosh i hate to do this because and, and i don't even want to play my sound effects because i kind of want to take this seriously and not do shtick all night but it does remind me of that second season of the wire where they're talking about the death of the american dream and you know something that you and i have talked both on and off air about how people you know, relate to certain politicians and certain causes because of the discomfort they're having with the way the world currently works. And it's been that going that way for 30 years now. Well, not to and, not to get too contemporarily political, but we recently had uh, more local elections here in the United States a couple of days ago for uh, only at the state level. Uh, there's not going to be a more like the federal midterms are next year. But there were a lot of states that have uh, in 2021 had their, uh, you know, their governor gubernatorial races. They had state senates, you know, a lot of that stuff. And in certain states that were not expected to break as hard to one direction as they did, they broke even harder. And I, it somewhat amused me to see the reaction on Twitter because someone, I, I forget who, so I apologize, hit the nail on the head of who would have thought that the party in plans... Like they're the party in charge, their plans of not materially improving anyone's lives didn't result in votes. <laughs> and, and, and now bear in mind, I'm not saying this is not be advocating for either political party, because this has been true of both of them at various points in times. I tend to think they both are corrupt and suck and should be burned to the ground as as institutions, not as the government. I mean, you, you can't sell me on the Democratic or the Republican parties as being virtuous at this point in time. Anyway. No. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the point, I think you're correct in the sense that there's a lot of people that would see this and not just be taken in by the beautiful scenery, but this kind of, because parts of this would be a little bit shocking, would be a little bit experiential. Like, what do you, you mean they have to poop into these buckets? Well, I think the idea of how tenuous people have a grasp on their economic comfortability and that we're all kind of living one paycheck away from many of us, not we're all. Many people are living one or two paychecks away from having to live in their car. You know, yeah. a, a medical bill here, 
a loss of job there, a drying up of industry over yonder. And suddenly your middle, middle class, comfortable lifestyle with lemonade in the pool and two and a half kids and the dog turns into everyone piled into the Prius that you bought, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's like, that's a reality. And this film, yeah. Chloe Zhao, her, I think the master stroke that she did with this film is she spoke to that anxiety without beating you over the head with it. Yeah, this very easily could have turned into, uh, I mean, you and I have lambasted a great number of films mm -hmm. that have tried to be overly preachy about elements of the economic economic or political system. Well, the take is this just happens. Yeah. We don't need to get into why it happens, it, it, but it does. It's a reality. In many cases, it's inescapable. And so there's a true human interest story. And in what does one do? People just don't die. You know, they just don't like sh um, shrivel and die on the vine when stuff like this happens to them. They they adapt. They move on. They try to figure things out. The um, the character that she meets, Dave, you know, he clearly is having difficulties getting his stuff together. But he when he's offered the opportunity to live with his family and then he extends it to Fern, you know, he's one of these people who couldn't quite figure it out himself. But when he had the opportunity to get comfortable again and be, you know, with his feet firmly planted on the ground, he took it. But then there's people like Fern who, like I said, when the idea of trauma in, you know, in the loss of all of your, um, in the loss of all of your, I don't mean this as the government program, but your social securities, mm your job, your home, you know, your community, when it's all just, it's all just up in smoke. There are people who are reticent to want to go back to anything like that. It's like, if I'm on the road and I'm moving, and this is sort of Fern's point, if I'm on the road and I'm moving, I have more control over myself and, and my well-being than if I put myself back in a home and it all goes, and it all goes to pot again. Um, so it's not just about tour. This isn't a movie just about touring the United States. This yeah. is a movie about somebody sort of wrestling with what to do with the next part of their life. I believe the actual book that it's based on is uh, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, which um, I, I want to say I, I was reading when I looked over the credits, there was something about either like a subheading of the book or another book that this that this alludes to. You know, what do you do when you can't afford to retire? you know, in the second half of your life. And this is what some people do. You know, they yep. give up their homes and they get in the RV and they go. And it's not necessarily because they want to tour around the world. It's because they can't afford to live in a house anymore. Um, but I want to talk about as a film, um, because, I mean, people listening to this review might be thinking to themselves like, OK, but what if I'm not into sad piano, the movie? And, <laughs> for, the, and for the record, for the record. I heard this referred to as sad piano, the movie, and I thought it was mm -hmm. purely going to be about the subject, like the subject matter. Mm -hmm. which it kind of is but then the only score to this is just sad piano music yeah well that's why i laughed about it we you know it's like oh we've been jokingly calling it sad piano the movie and i'm like oh this really is a lot it of sad really piano. is but i mean it's about fern as a person it's about you know francis mcdormand really deserved her oscar for this she she does a phenomenal job of somebody sort of tenuously hanging on to her mental health as, as she's trying to hold the threads of her life together in this van, this van where she feels safe from all the trauma she suffered. Um, but but aside from that, she meets, you know, she she and Dave have this on again, off again relationship. And so the movie's somewhat about that. That's what I mean. Like it's it's a 
you might struggle if you don't care about the subject matter and the, the vistas don't particularly draw you in. I don't know why they wouldn't because this is art. Oh, the cinematography is wonderful, and mm -hmm. uh, this is not when I say that I'm not that it doesn't do a whole lot for me. That's not me saying it's badly done. I, I was speaking in general, not you specifically. Yeah, yes. Um, it is. It, there are some beautiful, beautiful shots that are in this movie. Yeah, but look, if you're somebody, if you're somebody who's like, but I, I, this is not my kind of thing. Let me tell you, there. It does take a while once the once the world is introduced to get to any kind of central conflict, and the central conflict is a bit slight. It's kind of the expectation is this middle aged white woman should find a home. That you know, it's kind of like. It's kind of like you know Cinderella. You know this this young this young girl should find a husband and you know and have her fairy tale ending. That's the expectation. Frances McDormand should have a home. She she should have a place to live. It's you're kind of looked down upon as somebody who doesn't have that piece of the American dream. And she's going, but that's not my dream right now. That's not me right now. That's not where I want to be. This sucked. This whole situation sucked for me, and I would prefer not to go through it a second time, which is not something I can control. There's a lot of elements in this world that just are out of my control and I'd rather just be in a van and keep it moving. Um, and so as, a, as central conflicts go, like I said, it's slight. You know, we certainly see movies with stronger ones, but that, that's something though I think to hold on to as far as a hook. And, you know, and then the rest of it is, I mean, it's a talky movie. I, I Again, this this feels like a documentary. If you don't, you know... I think that's my one criticism of it, if I have to find one, is the drama is also slight because there's so much, this is this, this is the part of the nomad world, and this is a part of the nomad world, and this is Francis McDormand doing a thing. This is Francis McDormand doing another thing. It takes, I mean, this movie is this, how long? It is not um, short. Yeah, it is almost two full hours long, and it takes over an hour for her to get to her sister's house, which is the only real drama in this movie. Is when this, she's at my sister's house is when she's at Dave's kid's house. There's uh people referred to this movie as a character study. And I don't think I agree with that character. No, it's not it's, it's not a character study. It's it's maybe a topic study. Yeah. I mean, look, you mentioned that the, you mentioned earlier this movie is not a travel log. Mm -hmm. It's closer to a travel log than it is to a character study. I don't Ferns, think it's a character study at all. Francis is yeah. very much somebody you could Francis is almost a blank slate. Outside of outside of some like clear trauma and anxiety about going back to her old life, she's sort of just somebody I think an audience can project themselves onto. Yeah, and moreover, there's nothing. I hate to say it this way because it seems like I'm being disingenuous. There's not a whole lot interesting about her. No, like the act, which is this is somewhat of a credit to Frances McDormand as an actor because. She's able to do a lot with very, very little. Can I uh, can I add something really quick? Because if mm -hmm. I don't talk about this, I'm going to kick myself. So we, so you brought this up because, and this goes back to the conversation of we we talk so much about franchise, bombastic, big mm -hmm. hit, blockbuster, loud, uh, bellowing movies, right? That's kind of our stock and trade, and how in many cases, I know the red letter media guys have brought this up too, how numbing it can be to where. You know, when you it, it's, not, it's, look, I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb here. You've seen the Eternals. I haven't. I'll be seeing it. I think I'm gonna be seeing it tomorrow because it's a three-hour movie. 
and seeing it 11 a.m. on a Saturday is pretty much the only time I can sneak that in before we have to review it. Mm -hmm. But, oh no, the world's going to end again. (laughs) Like, I'm glad I don't live in the MCU because threats to the existence of humanity seem to be an occurrence every other Tuesday. I was going to say, oh, look, the world is ending. It's a Tuesday. Pretty much. But and I, and I want to talk about this because at the beginning, the movie begins with her pulling some stuff out of storage, just enough to get in the van and get going. The rest of it's just going to sit in storage. Like the con, the confines of her life have been stored into this garage, and she's just taking what she needs it's and going stor- on the road. It's a storage unit. I have cleaned out many of them. And she is holding a plate, and she is reflecting and ruminating on this plate. She's holding it like it is the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And she packs it carefully and nicely and wonderfully into a box. And it's not something that she needs, but it's clearly something that means something. You don't know what it means to her. There's no voiceover or anything like that. Um, you know, David Lynch didn't direct this. Anyway, um, so she carefully, it's something she wants to take with her, despite the fact that it's probably something she didn't need, given that she's going to live on the road. In any case, so this prized possession that she has, this, this seemingly ordinary plate, Later on in the movie, she's got ants in the van, and she's cleaning out ants. Well, she explains the importance of that plate to one of her. I think oh, she does. She yeah, explains later on. it to Swanky. Yeah, it was uh, it, her father would collect, right. would go to like garage, uh, garage sales and estate sales and the like, and would collect stuff. And he gave her that plate on her. Uh, it was either her wedding day, or her graduation day from high school. I can't remember which one. I feel like when it was. I feel like it was when she got married. In any case, so this—it's the last thing her father gave her before yep. she went away to be married. You know, out in the sticks with her husband Bo. Fast forward, she's cleaning out her van. She's got ants. She's uptight, and Dave, who is trying to find an in with this woman who clearly likes her and wants to be with her, and is trying to be helpful and do all the things you do as a guy to get a woman's attention. And he he was like, "Let me help you," and he grabs the box of plates. And the box collapses, and the plates fall out and break. Bottom, the bottom falls out from that box. You gotta grab, you gotta double check that, man. You can't just lift, you can't just lift it wholesale. You gotta give it at least a little lift first to double check. I didn't jump a single time during Halloween Kills. Not a single death made me jump. I didn't jump at all during Venom. I didn't jump at all during Shang Chi. I didn't jump at all during Malignant. Um, I, I may have like one or two times like looked uh, looked off screen. I, I remember we talking about that. Like there was a couple of like the tension was getting to me, um, but I did not. I did not jump like you know the intent with a lot of like Michael Bay films, a lot of big action films is the action is supposed to be so bombastic. You know it should knock you out of your seat. You should jump with at least enthusiasm, if not pure fright. And I'll tell you, I I don't have that reaction to most films anymore because I'm numb to a lot of it. I jumped when he dropped the box. I ju- I legit, ju- I was laying in bed watching the movie and I was like, oh, you know, and, and <laughs> like, oh, and then, and then I had this like really visceral, sad reaction. Like, it, you know, first it was, I was mad at Dave, like dummy. She told you she didn't need help. She's a big, strong woman who don't need no man. And she didn't want your help. And look what you did. You broke her plates. And I was so mad about it. I was so mad. But I mean, that's effective filmmaking, you know, that the, the ability to create investment in what's going on right. is an important thing. And I'm going to bash on the MCU here a little bit. And to be abundantly clear, 
this is just because it's the biggest and most obvious target that everyone understands, not because I hate the MCU. The MCU, I don't. I Look, do I think their batting average has gone down over time? Yes. Am I enthused? No. But do I have a visceral hatred of it? Not really. Okay. Uh, getting, trying to get the audience to invest in characters and what's going on is is one of the keys to any bit of filmmaking. The, the audience has to care about what's happening on screen, either because they care about the characters or because they care about what's happening in some variety. And most of the MCU movies lately have done this via the stupid method of escalating tension to the point where no one believes in their tension anymore. Right. You know, Thanos is not going to win and eradicate the universe. We know this. We know you have sequels planned. Uh, oh, what was the other one? Um, Ego is not going to take over the known universe by utilizing Peter Quill as a battery to power his expansion. They're, you're not going to destroy the universe. The big alien being born out of the core of the planet is not going to hatch and shatter the Earth because we have sequels planned. Like, this is part of the problem with a lot of this filmmaking. I mean, the Fast and the Furious franchise has the same problem. Well, what do we do now? Well, can we get the stakes any higher? No, we've gone to space. <laughs> okay, but hear me out. What if they have to race around the sun? Do you not know how big the sun is, sir? Meanwhile, Chloe Zhao's great um, success with this film is that she was able to produce the kind of things that Michael Bay and company long for in a dropped box of plates. Yep. Last thing, and then we should move on to the next film. Look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that everyone should see Nomadland. Not, and, and this is something I talk about all, because people like, one of the things I like about podcasting, as I've said before, is the dedicated talk time to a single or a handful of subjects without interruption, without having to do something else, you know, trying to fit it in, in between work projects and patients and whatnot, whatever it is we're doing, you know, um, when you're online at the Arby's and the guy turns around and says, have you seen Eternals yet? We aren't looking, he isn't looking for a 45 minute discussion of film prep. He just wants to know if you like the movie and should he see it? I get that. Um, and so, you know, this gives me the, the venue to have the kinds of conversations that I particularly enjoy and long for that I can't have in real life because there's no time and nobody cares enough. That being said, I also know that not everybody is a film person. Recommending great film to the vast majority of people is a giant waste of time. Yeah, um, it really is. They're not people. There are more people like my wife than there are myself and Robert. My wife is a passive film person. Does she like movies? Sure. She, you know, she likes to watch a Will Ferrell movie or an Adam Sandler movie or, you know, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, um, you know, or something British like Downton Abbey. You know, and she watches it and it's over and she goes about her life. The things that she thinks deeply about are not having to do with film. And the vast majority of people out there are people like my wife. And that is something I have brought up many times on, on this podcast. So would I recommend Nomadland to the vast majority of people? No. no. They're not going to get it. They're not going to like it. This will. This is a very, very niche film. Which, can we talk about this? Because this is the Oscar winning, you know, slash nominated triple feature. I think Nomadland winning Best Picture 
was a great conversation piece because it's very telling about the Oscars. The Oscars is a film appreciation awards event. It is people who know film in theory, and this is all in theory, people who know film in theory awarding filmmakers for the films they made. These things didn't have to make money. These things didn't have to have wide appeal. They just had to be the best films of that year by craft. And a lot of people seem to think that the Oscars in particular, because I think there's there's like a people's choice or another one that's actually more crowd-pleasing stuff. The, and, and people's, more... the people's Choice Awards used to be a bit of that. Now they're just, they're more okay. of the Oscars crap. Yeah, to say it's sort of a dress rehearsal for the Oscars. But I mean, the, the, the understanding that people have of the Oscars is, is wrong, basically. They think it should be the most popular movie, you know, or the most crowd-pleasing. That's, like, that's not what the Oscars is. Yeah. That's not what you win awards for. It, that is a profound misread of what this is about. That I mean, look, I have my issues with the Oscars. I tend to think that they've become a little bit too pretentious for their own good, and that's saying something. <laughs> I think they have, on several occasions, radically misread the state of the films they were discussing. Well, they got internally political and externally political, and so they really more so than they like that. They've they've always been that a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's just been it's gotten worse and worse each progressive year, and the last three to four years, it's been unbearable. So, you know, picking a film based on its subject matter because the subject matter is resonant with that particular time or the agenda of the people making those films and whatnot. You know, yeah, you, t you tend to disconnect with your audience doing things like that. But did Nomadland deserve to win Best Picture? Yeah, sure it did. It absolutely was one of the best made pictures of 2020. It's also not one that's going to resonate with a lot of people, and it's not one that people are going to enjoy. It just isn't. I... Again, like, would this have been my vote for best picture of the year? I don't think it would. Well, we can do. I, hang on. Do I object to it winning? Not really. It's in. I certainly don't object to Chloe Zhao winning best director. I think. Uh, I think her direction of this was amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, I still don't think it's the. I don't. Let me put it this way: If we're talking just quality of overall film, she made a movie before this. Um, and the name escapes me it's something like this uh god why am i blanking on this she she doesn't have a lot of movies to her credit but i looked up this one after i got a little bit of buzz mm -hmm. i will find the name momentarily uh songs my brother taught me mm -hmm. i genuinely kind of tend to think that's a bit more of a better film mm -hmm. than than Nomadland was, but again, I, I look. If you thought that one squeaked out the win based on how the voting went, sure. I'm, I'm not going to die on the look. I might try to die on the hill that Fury Road should have won the year that it was nominated. Uh, I tend to think that's a hill worth dying on. Is because I can't. I think the Revenant won that year. No, the Revenant didn't win, but um. The director for Revenant won for Best Picture, and I forget what won Best Picture. Forgive me. Was that the other Wolf of Wall Street one? No, Wolf of Wall Street didn't win. Might have been Searchlight. Right, I think Search. Matter. I think Searchlight won Best Picture that year, but it, it it's somewhat immaterial. There are certain years for the Oscars that you can look and 
say, okay, I'm going to die on the hill that Shawshank Redemption should have won instead of Forrest Gump. Okay? That's a worthwhile hill to die on. Fair enough. I don't think that in twenty in 2020 there was a... I don't. I think any of those movies that were not almost any of those movies, because if they'd got if Promising Young Woman had won, I think we all would have just <laughs> burned. <laughs> yeah, flipped the table like that, that's. But you know, if you if you look at like the four favorites, any of those could have won, and I don't think it would have been wrong. All right, let's talk about Mank. Now we, again, so let us discuss how Hollywood is utterly incapable of being self-critical. <laughs> look i um one of the things about me you I, me uh i like hollywood i mean look is hollywood perfect no there are people who molest children in hollywood you know? yep. <laughs> i mean there are people people abuse women you know that are eager to be in pictures and don't have a tremendous amount of self-worth and will do what they need to do to get into said pictures hollywood is a gross disgusting place However, um, there are almost elements. as gross and disgusting as XPW, where you worked. I've already told that story. I know that. that <laughs> look, that was your opportunity to plug your dark side of the ring discussion with Pat Mullen, or if you were not so inclined to do that, to get one of the to get one of our sponsors out of the way. Yes, and what sponsor do you think we should talk about today, Robert? Well, as far as Mank goes, there's enough music being used appropriately. You know what? No, let's do Grammarly, because we're talking about a writer. Great. Look, Herman Mankiewicz could have definitely used help from Grammarly on some of his screenplays. <laughs> not not necessarily Citizen Kane, but some of the other ones. Can I tell you him sitting in a bed with just, just buried in, in legal pads, because that's what he wrote the script on, gave me such anxiety. I was, I, <laughs> I was like, oh, God. <laughs> like Mick Foley talking about writing... Um, uh, sex lies and headlocks. No, not sex lies and headlocks. Have a nice day yeah. on just in spiral notebooks. Spiral notebooks. Anyway, yes, Grammarly, which could have been effective back in the early 1900s when they wrote Citizen Kane. Uh, Grammarly's AI powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps write mistake free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary. And suggesting style improvements to download Grammarly today. Go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. Okay. So, yes, Mank. Um, I'm a fan of Hollywood. I like the, the history of Hollywood. I enjoy at least the notion that Hollywood is this magical place where dreams come true and all of that. And the, well, the actual history of Hollywood is something that appeals to me. So, a, a self indulgent celebration of the golden age of Hollywood. While that would, I'm sure, drive many people up the wall, which is why not a lot of people saw it, watched Mank on Netflix. I was interested in it. The more I learned about this movie back when it was competing for the Oscar and you know, people were talking about it, the more because um, with, with a name like Mank, if you don't understand what that's supposed to be, like I don't like that doesn't tell you anything about this movie. It's short for Mankowitz, which is what this is, this is who this is about. But like if you're just like, oh, some new movie dropped on Netflix, it's called Mank. And, you know, what's a mank? So, like, I get that this would have just gone right past people, you know, and they would have never have known it existed. But I learned about it. I heard what it was about. I'm a student of film. I enjoy the history of Hollywood. And so I knew I was going to sit down and watch this thing. I tried watching it 
while I was on vacation with my family. Watching this at a loud bar on an iPad was a bad idea. Yes. <laughs> there, there's an, a lot of... Robert often talks about, I like movies that reward me for paying attention. I and do. this is a movie with a lot of detail and a lot of dialogue you have to pay attention to, or you will not understand what's happening in this movie. And it's not particularly ethereal or esoteric. It's just very dense and detailed. So go ahead and let's talk about what Mank is all about, Robert. Well, Mank is about, I believe it was Herman Mankiewicz. Uh, in this movie, played by the great Gary Oldman. And the movie itself focuses on his writing of Citizen Kane, the seminal piece of cinema directed and starring Orson Welles. And as Mank goes about writing what is to be his masterpiece, we get a lot of flashbacks to his time in Hollywood, how he came up, him basically being a glorified con artist in some respects, <laughs> his gambling habits, his alcoholism, and some of his regrets as far as life goes and some of his biggest ones he carries on a close friendship a non-romantic uh friendship with oh her name escapes me the actress's name is amanda siegfried sure and she plays marion davies marion that was it and those two become fairly close marion is one of the paramours of real life <laughs> newspaper mogul slash film mogul William Randolph Hearst about whom Citizen Kane is very famously based and attacking very much so <laughs> uh, so we follow his we follow Manx's career at MGM primarily which is where he does a lot of his work some of the movies that he does some of the people that he's in the writer's room with currently owned by Amazon currently and he has a f handful of regrets about some of his life. Some of it he's happy to play the court jester or the, uh, the I'm smarter than all of you, but I will do the stupid things kind of character, borderline caricature of himself in some respects. His particular uh, life starts to turn just a little bit when he makes an offhanded remark to one of the studio heads at MGM about one of, because uh, this is set during the, I forget the specific year, forgive me, but during the California gubernatorial race, where one of the MGM founders, I believe mayor, no, not mayor, sorry, um, Miriam. God, it's going to bug me. I'll, for, I'll remember at some point. You're talking about Metro Goldwyn and Meyer? <sighs> yeah, I'm, I, forgive me, I'm just mistaken then, I suppose. But so the one of the uh, nominees for the governorship is supported by the studios at MGM in particular. He's uh, bought in there somehow, I seem to recall. And he's being opposed by radical socialist Upton Sinclair. And the problem is that... Hang on, if you don't know who Upton Sinclair was, he wrote a book uh, called The Jungle, which famously made Theodore Roosevelt vomit. And got Theodore Roosevelt to institute the Food and Drug Administration, which is today a morally and ethically and procedurally bankrupt organization. But but at the time was horribly necessary because Sinclair's book was largely nonfiction. If you want to know what people were eating back in the back in you know pre twenties, like in the early a lot of sawdust, a lot. 
so he so, and Mank makes an offhanded remark that you know you people are pathetic. You can make people believe that King Kong is real and 40 feet tall and that some famous actor is a virgin at the age of 40. And you can't get people to vote against Upton Sinclair. And this particular studio head decides, you know what? You're right. How about we fabricate things? <laughs> so they commence a... I, I have to bring up politics in this particular discussion because it's in the film. People complain about disinformation in 2021, and I'm not saying that it's great. But you don't have some of the most powerful media empires in the world wholesale lying to you, <laughs> hiring extras to give spoken falsehoods, and then passing this off as legitimate. That's that's not really a thing in 2021. I'm not saying it never happens, but certainly not to this degree. And ultimately, Sinclair is defeated and... The guy who directed all these things for MGM uh, starts to feel horrible regret about his part in this woeful miscarriage of democracy and commits suicide. And this can this gets manked to spiral downward to the point where at a dinner, a Halloween party, I seem to recall, a lot of people were dressed up. Mank goes on a drunken tirade against the studio, the actors, the actresses, and William Randolph Hearst in particular. And he is then exiled because you really don't cross powerful people like that. It tends to go badly. Uh, he is contract. He is contacted by Orson Welles, who is looking to go from radio into the talkies. Also from the strictly talkies into the moving pictures. Uh, talkies would be a different joke. And wants Mank to write him something. And he gives Mank essentially full creative control over this project. He's going to edit it and and whatnot for this film, but, you know, you're not going to be overseen by a director. You're not going to be overseen by a production staff. You write what you want to write. And Mank produces what would become Citizen Kane. There's a minor subplot about Mank originally agreeing not to take screen credit for this. To have this just be to have been a completely uncredited ghostwriter on this project and let Wells take the lion's share of the credit. When his brother tells him it's the best thing you've ever written, his tune changes, and he goes, I do want credit. This pisses off the famously short-tempered and temperamental Orson Welles. Um, there's a brief explosive argument. Uh, but ultimately, Mank is given proper screen credit for the play, uh, for the script. Um, the screenplay gets made, it the movie gets made, it wins an Oscar for Best Screenplay, was famously, if you don't know the real history behind this, Citizen Kane, universally regarded as one of the most important uh, transcendent pieces of cinema art ever, was not nominated for Best Picture, not even nominated for the Oscar for Best Picture because of the influence that William Randolph Hearst held. Right. Meanwhile, it is highly regarded as, as a staple uh, piece of film history. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you, I, 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 though my, my bachelor's degree is in language and literature, a useless degree. I imagine that's up there with political science is something you take just to get your next step. Yeah. Um, I took a lot of writing and reading classes and drawing like theater creation classes and I'm like, oh, they all fit into this one category. So that's the degree I'm going to get. Sure. And, why not? Um, in any case, I did take a, uh, 
a couple of different film classes and it was like mandatory we had to watch citizen kane yep it is again it's a genuinely remarkable film uh but again not even nominated because hearst was not happy about being publicly lampooned um wells was i believe nominated for best oscar but did not best actor but did not win which is another crying shame and this movie closes with uh, i believe the actual audio from orson wells and he was informed that he won he gave mm-hmm. an, a radio interview and said well i'm happy that it won and was and he was asked a few other things like you know about not being nominated for best picture and he had a kind of glib response and do you have anything to say to your co-author herman mankowitz he says you can kiss my hat because one must keep <laughs> things everyone knew what he meant in all things class and dignity and then we cut over to Mank accepting the award. He was given one uh, somewhat privately. And again, I, I believe Gary Oldman gives uh, word for word what Mank was credited with having said. Mm-hmm. And that is, I accept this Oscar in the same spirit in which Citizen Kane was written without Orson Welles. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then well, we get we get we get a post we get a little like title card at the mm-hmm. end that you know. There's a few jokes in this movie um, about Gary Oldman. Because Gary Oldman is not a young man. Mm-mm. Gary Oldman, he believes in his 70s. I'd have to double check that, but he's he's not young. And Mankiewicz was only like 55 when he died from complications due to his alcoholism. So to have this very old man, <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say very old, but have this older man playing someone 20 years younger and just like, and the excuse being, you know, Hard living, lots of smoking and lots of booze, and you look like this when you're 45. This was directed by David Fincher. You might know David Fincher from you might his other features: Alien Three, Seven, The Game, Fight Club, which we've reviewed on this network, um, Panic Room, Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, which is fantastic, The Girl with the Gra- Dragon Tattoo, Gone you Girl. You and I had very different reactions to the social network, just for the record. I mean, you don't have to like the subject matter to like the movie. The movie was well done. Um, he also worked on House of Cards, Mindhunter, and Love, Death, and Robots. I and really wish. Of... I, I am so sad we're not getting a season three of Mindhunter. I love that show. And then he did a bunch of music videos. Um, this was written by uh, Jack Fincher, who did the screenplay. And uh, some of the other are, uh, actors in this, Amanda Seyfried, as we mentioned before, Lily Collins, Arliss Howard, Tom Pelfrey, and Charles Dance. Special so, special shout out to Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst. That, that man has an icy stare. <laughs> yeah, he does. So, look, um, <clears throat> I enjoyed this movie, but I enjoyed this movie in the way that people who enjoy movies about the self-indulgence of Hollywood uh, tend to like those kinds of movies. I can see why this didn't win Best Picture. It was nominated, but I can, I definitely don't think it deserved to win, not over this competition, not over its competition in on this podcast. Like yeah. I had to put, I had to put the father over, over, over this. I Ditto. think, you know, um, in our chat, you know, we have some people and, and I regard them. I, I think their opinions are important, but they are definitely not film people. They like what they like. They like movies, but they like movies in the same way yeah. that people like, you know, steaks and candy, you know, Look, and rock hey, music. Hey, like it makes them feel good. I, I don't mean the following is an insult. I really don't. There are plenty of people who like movies the way people like McDonald's. Mm-hmm. 
and again, this is not an insult. This is not me saying, how dare you like McDonald's food, metaphorically or literally. That's, but that's just, that's all, that's all film is to you. And that's right. fine. You're not, it's not going to be all things to all people in that respect. And so when I, when I, we were talking about, we were going to review this and they, and they were like, well, what's it about? And I said, and I told the group what it was about and it was, ugh, why? Like, I get that. I, I really do sympathize with the idea of who the hell wants to watch a two hour motion picture, self-flagellating Hollywood. Well, but I mean, that's I, true. <laughs> but on the other hand, some people like that sort of thing. I know I did. I was I thoroughly enjoyed this motion picture. I think Gary Old, Oldman um, was definitely a contender for best actor in this. In the, I think in the absence of the movie we're going to talk about after this, he might have yeah. won. But I, look, I know everyone was falling over themselves over Chadwick Boseman. Mm -hmm. because he very tragically passed and don't get me wrong that sucks he was way too young we we have covered a lot of the oscar nominees and winners from this past oscars on here believe it or not it's like a far cry from what we normally know but it just happened to happen this year yeah the one that we didn't do is ma rainey's black bottom let me just address it now ma rainey's black bottom is fine it is a talky yeah. movie <laughs> i can see what i can see where it was adapted from a play it very much feels like a play and chadwick boseman is fine in it but had the man not died, this is kind of like Heath Ledger and Heath Ledger's Joker. There's, well, a there's a debate about how much he deserved to win an Oscar for that performance and how much of it was he died. I, the, I think the primary difference there, and this, this mm -hmm. might seem like a weird distinction to draw, but it is an important one because of what goes into the category. Mm -hmm. Heath Ledger won Best Supporting Actor. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at him against the other nominees that particular year, and you discuss who did the best job supporting the cast and the story and who did the best acting job within that capacity, I think there's a very, very cogent argument to be made in favor of Ledger's take on the Joker. Sure. Which is still a tremendous thing. If he, you know, There was no call for Ledger to be nominated for best actor for the Joker, at least no mm -hmm. real one. Because Meanwhile, Chadwick Boseman is competing against Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins, among others. And a few others, yeah. <laughs> and uh... to be, look, to be perfectly honest... I don't want to say Bozeman's was the weakest performance out of that group of nominees because I'm not uh, off the top of my head. I don't remember that I believe that. Hang on. It'd Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Bozeman from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Gary Oldman from Mank, excuse me, and Steven Yoon for Minari. I haven't seen Minari, but I heard it's phenomenal. Like in that group, the like maybe four and five are interchangeable, and four or five are Chadwick Bozeman and Riz Ahmed. I'm yeah. sorry if that's triggering for people. I'm sorry he died, but he's not the best out of that group. He's just yeah, not. Yeah, that's... Not that's, for this performance. And I loved uh, him already. He's Black Bottom. Of course. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, again, jokes aside, yeah, you're you're correct. Like, he, he did a good job. I had no issue with his nomination, but uh, I didn't watch all of the nominated films before they came out. That's why I didn't say a whole lot about it when... Uh, Anthony Hopkins won, and Twitter mm -hmm. had a mild meltdown. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But yeah, yeah, that's kind of my thought process now that I've seen a lot more. I'm like, yeah, I don't think he was ever going to win that one. <laughs> no, I just, look, he had stiff competition. There, Look, there were people who made arguments for Riz Ahmed in The Sound of Metal, which I can't speak to. I haven't watched it. Anyway, back to Mank. Um, uh, the point being there, I think Gary Oldman's acting is one of the highlights of this film. To the shock yeah. of no one, Gary Oldman is awesome. But, uh, but I'll tell you, Amanda Seyfried is radiant. Yeah. And I don't use that word very often, and it sounds 
very pretentious me hearing it out loud but i don't care well especially for especially for a black and white movie to glow like that is not an easy thing to pull off no but but you agree she pulls it off doesn't she Mm -hmm. she lights up that screen um the cinematography you spoke about this with nomadland the cinematography of this is great because black and white just by nature of its color paletting can be a bit is obviously monochrome and can be dull and they somehow managed to make the whites bright and the blacks dynamic to where this is a very interesting movie to look at. Like if There's... you watch, if you watch the beginning of the Wizard of Oz, which is like black and white, like sepia toned, it yeah. looks and, like and it's done that it looks, I mean, part of it is the age of the film, but even mm-hmm. if you watch like like a restored version of it, it's still very much like you said, like soup, but it's done for contrast, so that when they go to Oz and Oz is so gorgeous looking, you know, you you pick up the you pick up the difference. Whereas this has no contrast. So they can really focus on making the the black and white pop, which it absolutely does. Um, and it, this movie, in terms of the cinematography and the use of black and white as a as your color palette, reminded me a lot of Schindler's List, mm-hmm. which is also shot almost exclusively. I mean, the other obvious, uh, very very obvious, actually, uh, parallel to would be, would be the artist, mm-hmm. which was done not just black and white, but as a silent film. Uh, fairly recently, I shouldn't say fairly recently. It's been a while, but within the last ten years, I think. Uh, so, uh, making a good black and white film is a bit of an art form to get the shadows to work right, to get the to get to the point where everything still pops and doesn't, you know, turn into this gray morass. And they did a wonderful job here. There's some there's some genuinely lovely shots in this film. I can see why it won. There's some stuff that's incredibly well framed. Uh, the entire sequence where Marion and Mank kind of just wander the MGM compound mm-hmm. is all incredibly well shot. I I talked before about podcasting for me is you know is the activity of long form discussion with you know with friends that's that's the value of it and watching a movie like this which you know which takes place in the early uh 20th century where they're actually in a sitting room drinking a lot of it randy discussing the events of the day and nobody is triggered or having a meltdown <laughs> they're, they're no no one's using tremendous i mean they might have back in the back then it's just not captured in this movie you know, no one's using tremendously harsh language. It's an elevated conversation. There is, you know, Amanda Seyfried just sort of speak out of turn and sound like a dummy, which he acknowledges in the next scene. But it was like, I, we talk about the lost art of the discussion because, you know, social media has rendered a lot of it moot. Um, yeah. But also people have, people seem to have difficulty with discourse and, the sharing of ideas and debate it's everyone's looking for their own echo chamber everyone seems to be looking for a validation of their own ideas and when they are confronted with um different ideas <laughs> different ideas differing opinions um they uh they tend to act defensively which ruins again the art of the conversation and it was nice to see, you know this is a long movie this one's also uh, over two hours long, the exact time. Um, yeah, this is two two hours and ten minutes, two hours and eleven minutes. 
and it was nice to see some amount of time spent on the culture of socialization in the early 20th century. A lost, a, a lost bit of um, culture, as it were. And it's something that I think uh, would be nice. I don't know how you get back there from where we are now with the, with the technology we have, but it would, be, it would be nice to see something like that return. And I liked watching it in this film. The subject matter in and of itself didn't really matter to me. It was the ability to, of adults to sit around and casually drink and talk and it'd be nice and dynamic. Um, alcoholism is real. And it was, is it really? <laughs> and it was captured tragically in this movie, but not in that basketball diaries. You know, your um, character ends with him screaming at a doorway. It, it was it was portrayed here effectively, but it never slipped into kind of melodrama. It That's never... what I mean. If you have you seen basketball diaries, right? Uh, at some point, yes. Not okay, so you know what I'm talking about. With yeah, I know, I know the scene. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ma, Ma, listen to me. You need to give me some money. Like five minutes later, Ma, you whore. I need money. Why are you doing this to me? Ma! So it doesn't get to yes, that level. You've, you've reenacted that scene several times. <laughs> but this time on film. You've done it on film before, too, or at least on tape. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, here's, I think, my big problem with this movie. Now, again, the acting is great. I don't think there's a bad performance to be had. And that's saying a lot. I, the guy they got to play as Orson Welles nailed the voice, which is kind of the most important aspect of that. Sorry, I've been dying to do this on all, all podcasts. All right. Rosebud. Rosebud frozen peas. They're full of vitamin A and green penis. Wait, that's terrible. I quit. I'm I'm glad you're amused. <laughs> Go on. I, I'm glad you've pleased yourself. <laughs> I got my one stupid joke in. Oh no, you're you're good. You're good. Um uh, again, here's kind of my big gripe with this. I think the central tension of this is misplaced. And okay. I mean that in the following way. Especially with how this movie ends. And mm -hmm. I think that's I think that's my big problem with it. This the ending of this movie tries to bring it back tries to bring the narrative and the tension of this back around to the friction between Mank and Wells as they were going about the creative process for to, to make Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem with that. In your two hour plus film, these two share less than ten minutes of screen time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like you would all this again almost feels like a documentary, you know, documenting the process of writing Citizen Kane. And then it's not until the back half of the movie, almost the third act, before you realize the central conflict is between Orson Welles and Mank. Yeah, they do uh, they do a very very poor job of of capturing that conflict of of making you care about that. Again, they're on. They talk on the phone a couple of times, and then there's one scene where Mank says, "I want credit," and Wells throws a case against the wall, and Mank goes, "You know, that's just what that last act needs—a violent explosion before he heads off." And Wells goes, "Yeah, write it." 
and then walks out. <laughs> like, like he agrees a little bit. Like, yeah, I think you're right. And then he leaves. Like then- this almost felt like this should have been Mank sort of spiral into alcoholism and his relationship with his wife towards the end. And that it was almost like an antecedent point that he was in conflict with Orson Welles because of the way that this movie is paced and structured. It, it really is. I mean, here's here's the other problem with this. Again, that's a big problem. Here's, I think, the other problem. And this this goes to what I said when I introduced this particular film. Hollywood is incapable of being self-critical. And here's what I mean by this. In a sane world, which you can argue whether or not we live in one. Or be like my son and ask, what if everything you knew was a lie? True story. Look, I appreciate his attempt to become an existential philosopher. <laughs> At seven. Ask him how he knows he's not just a brain in a jar being fed electrical impulses. Uh, 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 next time I see him. Look, when you take him to see The Matrix, that's the discussion that has to come out of that. Sure. Um, Hollywood would be able to examine not just not just this time period in general, but some of the whole processes, some of the power structures, et cetera, et cetera, that go into making Hollywood what it is for better and for worse. They're not capable of doing that to artists. Put air quotes around that if you feel so inclined, but that's the truth. Consequently, ev- look, everyone would rather discuss Orson Welles' genius, which was real, than him being a violent, egomaniacal human being. People would rather cast Mank as a sympathetic, troubled figure than any other way. And the point being here, what does this lead us to when it comes to the discussion of this movie? It leads us to a point where the big turning point for Mank's character is, oh, woe is me, I inadvertently triggered a political outcome that I did not want. Oh, heaven forfend, the writer, the wit, the much put upon, crushed and cursed genius is the one person who twisted the outcome of a gubernatorial election away from poor Upton Sinclair, played by that pencil-necked geek, Bill Nye, who could have saved the great state of California from the ruin that would befall it just a few short years later. Get bent. <laughs> Self-insert much? Eh? <laughs> like, no. You, you, the only way Hollywood can ever be self-critical in this particular aspect seems to be when they can draw a hard political line that they agree with. Like, no, the Republicans should never win anything. Therefore, whenever they do, we can be critical of the people who helped. But it's ridiculous. It, it And look, that's a broader discussion to be had. I'm trying to focus on this movie. It's not like Sinclair was some great savior figure. At all. And it's not like California went down the dumps. There's a reason everyone and their dog in the dust bowl during the Depression moved there. Yes, that doesn't happen for another hundred years or so. No. No, uh, California becoming a uh, yeah. Okay, a, yeah. Look, look. In, in twenty twenty, in twenty twenty, parts of California are the world's largest outdoor toilet. Yeah, sure. I <laughs> congratulations, San Francisco. You surpassed Calcutta. Like, good for you. But yeah, again, that wouldn't happen for a while. But there's a joke in Family Guy about you know every time the power goes out, Peter tells a story about Star Wars. I, I... 
familiar with that narrative and, device, and, yes. and so i think with the return of the jedi one the power goes out and stewie goes what are we in iraq you could have done what are we in los angeles you given really the history of rolling blackouts in that city in modern times and then the joke would have been equally as funny but they don't do that one they do iraq instead of course not because at the time that that at that at the time that their take on return of the jedi was filmed and animated there was a democrat in charge right uh not to get not not to go too far off that particular topic but it's a big i think the point here is that it leads to a slant for this entire movie that undercuts everything that this thing could have been this movie i think i said this to you after i saw it this movie is not what it thinks it is right this movie seems to think that it's a rousing uh excoriation of the studio heads and they're cozying up to the to political powers and their and how dare they keep the little guy down and it's it's not that at all and the fact that they tried to make it that i think ultimately hurt the end product which to the credit of everyone involved is still really good but yeah. you if you want to be self-critical like that i got some news for you guys you have to be able to they, they made a nice celebration of the golden age of hollywood and the people <laughs> involved and it points here's your, celebra- here's your celebration Here's everything that made that possible, and this, this we don't like. Yeah, and, and, and you get. But this, as a as a political device, you're right; it falls flat. I mean, I, I, there's a little bit the same problem with uh, the most recent adaptation of The Great Gatsby, uh, which starred Leonardo DiCaprio. That is meant to be. Ah, damn it! I gotta save my dog. That is meant to be, uh, The Great Gatsby was always meant to be a condemnation of the excesses of the 20s. And unfortunately, the most recent adaptation turned what should have been a damning excess discussion into almost a celebration of look at how good things were when no, this is supposed to be condemned. You have a similar problem here. We don't we want to praise this part of Hollywood's history because look what it gave us. Look at the characters. Look at the great films. Don't we all kind of yearn for this in some kind of rosy-eyed nostalgia uh, discussion? But at the same time, everything about the world that made that possible, you pretend to hate. Maybe you do genuinely hate it. I don't need to. <laughs> I don't mean to go too far off of that tangent, but it, it just leads to this horrible dissonance and a a wildly inconsistent tone and a a central conflict that barely gets addressed at all because it spends so much time talking about Mank being disillusioned with the entire process of what he's doing. Like your climactic scene in most respects is him getting drunk and being told at some point, you know, you're just the monkey on the end of the chain, right? And I'm glad you know this now at the end. The end of all things. And for some reason, and then, but the movie has to keep going. And we, and the fact that the actual process of writing this led to so much acrimony between Mank and Wells that is never really touched. Like one scene, one. Right. This movie needed to be refocused. And I think, badly. I think David Fincher and David Lynch both kind of have the same problem is no one says no to them. And they are, they fall prey to their worst excesses all the time. Like uh, they're, they need a collaborator and they tend to, because they are regarded as artists, they tend to not have them. 
and the people they are working with tend to just say yes to everything because they are such hard, they are such auteur filmmakers that what you get many times is a muddled mess of a film from both Lynch and Fincher. Um, where, whereas I think like a you know someone giving them a hard no and another pass through editing and some reshaping of things and a lot of their films could have turned out better. This certainly being one of them. I, I don't disagree with that. So, all right. This is also, I think, the last thing that needs to be said about this. Mm-hmm. This is the least Fincher of David Fincher's movies. I think he's, he's got not, a very not weird. He's also got a very distinctive style mm-hmm. uh, for most of his direction, and it, I'm not saying it's completely absent here. But if you showed me this and didn't show me a director credit and asked me to pick who uh, who I thought had done it. I don't think David Fincher would kind of top my list of people I would have guessed. So I want to talk about the music for a second. Um, considering how much, considering how much opera is in the next film, yes, that's <laughs> appropriate. Fincher's frequent collaborators Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross composed the score for Mank. Forgoing their usual synth-heavy style, Reznor and Ross used period authentic instrumentation from the 1940s to accompany the film. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Take a drink every time you have to use the phrase as a result of COVID-19. Each member of the orchestra recorded their sections for the score from home. The entire soundtrack is composed of songs written and performed by Reznor and Ross and runs 52 tracks for over an hour and a half. There's also an extended version that runs over three hours with 87 tracks if you're really feeling self-indulgent. And do you know, Robert, where you can find the soundtrack to Mank? Look, if you can't find that on Amazon Music, which we are offering a free 30 days access to, I would be shocked because there's no- nothing quite says <laughs> nothing quite says the soundtrack to a movie attempting to excoriate the blending of politics and big business like this movie soundtrack being on Amazon. <laughs> Irony. Thy name is Mank. Anyway, yes, we are giving away a few. A, a 30-day trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. Um, if you head over to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network, make sure you complete and sign up the, pro- the complete the sign up process. Um, <clears throat> and you'll get your free 30 days. You can stream all you like. And then at the end of that 30 days, if you choose to keep it, you pay the monthly fee like you would Spotify or Apple Music. If not, you cancel it. No fuss, no must, no contract. It's easy as pie. We use it all the time on the Metal Hammer of Doom. Amazon Music has just the world's largest catalog music you can possibly find if it's if it's not on amazon it don't exist no more 70 million plus songs i seem to recall something like that huge catalog indeed speaking of huge okay robert that's not an appropriate (laughs) transition here (laughs) so the next up is the father this one actually had a traditional theatrical release um it's currently available on stars uh, or pvod uh but its initial release um it had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival on January 27, 2020. Prior to this, Sony Picture Classics and Lionsgate acquired US and UK distribution rights, respectively. It also screened at Toronto um, in September 14th of 2020 and at the AFI Fest in October of 2020. The film was released in India April 23rd, 2021, and in the UK June 11th, 2021. Delayed after earlier release dates of January 8th and March 12th in response to lockdowns as a result of the second wave of COVID. So in the US, another drink. <laughs> in the U.S., the film began a limited release in New York City and L.A. on February 26th before expanding on March 12th and then being available on premium video on demand March 26th. 
um, after originally be being scheduled to be released on December 18th of 2020. The Father is directed by Florian Zeller, um, based on a screenplay by Florian Zeller and Christopher Hampton. It is based on the uh, French play La Pere. Which I believe was also written by Zeller. Correct. Um, it stars Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman from The, um, the Crown, uh, Mark Gaddis, Imogen Poots, Rufus Sewell, and Olivia Williams. And this was not going to be of the best picture ones that we haven't already talked about. This was not going to be my choice. But I can't pick all the movies all the time by contract. So... <laughs> You and, I, you and I both know I don't have a contract. <laughs> so here's here's what the choices were that we hadn't already talked about. Um, Nomadland was going to be on this list. Mank was going to be on this list because I'm on this podcast. Yeah, we we need those two. We had both agreed upon, and we just needed a third. So we've already done Judas and the Black Messiah. That was Alexis and myself earlier this year, and just a traditional damn you Hollywood. Then there was Minari. Promising Young Woman, which I saw in the theaters, and I still don't feel comfortable talking about in public. Look, there's a lot of things I'll talk about. I'll talk about race. I'll talk about the Me Too thing. Promising Young Woman is one of those where you no good no good can come of me talking about that movie. No good can come of talking about that movie at all. It's a terrible film. <laughs> yeah. I don't great. look, that movie being nominated for as many awards as it was was kind mm -hmm. of like I was already mostly out on the Oscars hadn't watched the broadcast in several years like i just kind of given up on it like you got especially there was especially like a, there was a two to three year period where your best picture winners got more and more obscure and yeah. it felt like they were doing it on purpose yeah it was it was a lot of film shot in the dark behind a door that said beware of the leopard like I, I, they brought that back a little bit um with parasite no, parasite was a my darn favorite good movie. Oscar is the one year everything about the iraq war got uh was nominated <laughs> yeah, it would be for you. That, that was great. Like, and now <laughs> your your nominees for Beck's picture: shooting Iraqis, shooting Iraqis dead, helicopters crashing in Iraq, Afghanistan, bullets flying in Afghanistan, shooting in a cave in Afghanistan. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> this has been on and, and on and on. And your eventual winner: gay cowboys eating pudding. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, um, uh, so point being, like, no, you you walked out a promising young woman going, I don't know why I didn't pee all over the screen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, I just was dying to get to a theater and use my AMC. It was, it was so, like, you got to remember, this is like January of this year. Point anyway, being, we were never going to talk about that one. No. The other options were, again, Minari, The Sound of Metal, and Trial of the Chicago 7. I've seen The Trial of the Chicago 7. It's great. It definitely didn't deserve to win Best Picture. It's a talky political movie. It's my kind of movie, but like I don't know. I I, I think if you had not Look, insisted it, of all of these, if you had not insisted on the father, I probably would have pulled for it. Either that or the sound of metal. I one of those two. Uh, I would have been okay with any of those. I mean, look, here's the problem with Trial of the Chicago Seven, and this is I think the big thing that anyone's going to run up against if you watch it. Mm -hmm. It's an Aaron Sorkin movie. <laughs> And look, that has positives and negatives that come with it. There's no getting around that. But that is kind of what it is. I like Aaron Sorkin. I eh, hit and miss. Like when mm -hmm. he when he is on, yeah. he, he writes really good. Like him at his best is really, really good. 
otherwise yeah he he, um what's the line from family guy he insists upon himself a little bit he can be a little that way anyway so we landed on the father but you specifically asked for the father and why mostly be a couple of reasons one i love anthony hopkins i mean who doesn't even in the last night let's not discuss that thank you (laughs) look Anthony, Anthony Hopkins in the last paycheck. Anthony Hopkins gets to do whatever he wants to do because he's Anthony Hopkins. Sir if he Anthony wa- Hopkins. Sure. If he w- if Sir Anthony Hopkins wants to be in a Transformers movie because he thinks it would be cool, sure, buddy. You can do whatever you want. If he wants to be Zorro because the magic of Hollywood and that movie in particular, the mask of Zorro is such that you can make me believe 60 year old Anthony Hopkins can still do gymnastics routines. Knock yourself out. He did that because he wanted to be in an action movie. He thought it would be fun. <laughs> I mean, he was right. It's a great movie. <laughs> like he does whatever he wants to do because he wants to do it. So I'm not going to begrudge him deciding, you know what? Could be fun. Go, you're Anthony Hopkins. Some people look Mark Wahlberg, shame on you for so many things. Anthony Hopkins, you dude, he's already the man. The fact that he did this like years after the last night, like I can do a Michael Bay crap fest, and then year, three to five years later, I'll still win an Oscar because I'm Anthony freaking Hopkins. I I brought the father up specifically because we the if you don't remember. The big to-do around the 2020 Oscar broadcast was they decided to, traditionally, that broadcast ends with the awarding of Best Picture. That's the last award given out. That's what closes the show. The 2021 was, they changed the order. They were going to have Best Actor as the final award given out. And this led to a lot of people speculating that everyone knew Chadwick Boseman was going to win. He had very recently passed, tragically, uh, due to his battle with him. It was, stomach, it was cancer of some kind. I want to say stomach. Uh, again, terrible. He was a talented man. No one should die that young. Cancer sucks. I'd use an epithet there, but we're trying not to get demonetized. And then the broadcast rolls around. And the Oscar goes too, and they have, I believe it was Matthew McConaughey presenting. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was. And he opens the envelope and he says, and the Oscar goes to Sir Anthony Hopkins for the father. The Academy accepts this award on his behalf. He was not there in person because he was living in Wales and decided I don't want to fly across the planet with all the COVID restrictions to attend your little award ceremony. He offered to be on Zoom. Like, this is one of the crazy things to me. The director of that year's Oscars broadcast did not allow people to Zoom in. And Hopkins, one of the people, said, I'm happy to do it on Zoom if I should win, potentially. And they said no. So he released a very brief acceptance speech on Instagram the next day because screw you. (laughs) Again, because he's Anthony Hopkins and he can do whatever he wants. But there was a lot of speculation that They had set this up to celebrate Bozeman's life. Here you have a wildly popular figure who's also an acclaimed actor and has died recently and can be celebrated. And I think that, look, not being conspiratorial here, 
I think that was pretty clearly the intention, the setup. Part of the argument that was put forth by, again, the director of the broadcast was, you know, actors' speeches tend to be more dramatic than the directors and the production heads. Shock of shocks. One of these one of these groups of people is is a trained performer and speaker. The other is not. So that was part of the reason. And the broadcast cut off suddenly because there was no acceptance speech. There was no one there to accept it for Hopkins. They were not going to allow him to zoom in. So that was it. <laughs> Just... They had, I believe they had someone in attendance to accept on behalf of Bozeman. Uh, so forgive me for being potentially mistaken there. But it, it wound up being a clown fiesta of a broadcast for to the shock of no one. And my thought was, of the movies that were that were potentially on the table, I like Anthony Hopkins. I haven't seen The Father yet. And potentially talking about the merits of his performance versus Bozeman's and how that bit of drama played out might be worth the time and energy put into this particular podcast that was kind of my logic here dear twitch i've switched to green tea we believe you mark <laughs> this is not beer in a wine glass or white wine yeah you, you can't put beer in a wine glass it's a wine glass it actually rejects the liquid it's there's a chemical process in play so that was kind of the thought process here behind going with the father as i mentioned i hadn't seen it yet had I seen it beforehand, I still might have said we should talk about it, but I mean this as a compliment. This movie crushed my soul. You want to talk a little bit about what this film, how this film resonated with you personally in 50 words or less? Well, let's do the let's do the film first uh, as far okay. as the plot goes, and then we can talk about our reactions to it, because I, I mean, look. You're more empathetic than I am as a general rule, and you, know, you were a, a mess at the end of this thing. Well, that's that's the thing. I reacted to this movie due to general empathy. Yeah. I have not had the unfortunate um, relationship issues with somebody personal to me going through dementia. My, my nana, my paternal grandmother, um, had a stroke, had a handful of strokes at the end of her life, and I think the last one she finally was just like, get on with it already. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Um, and that was sad. And I and I miss her to this day. One of the few relatives who I genuinely got along with, um, who I feel genuinely loved me for all of my failures as a human being, <laughs> despite them. Um, and she's one of the few relatives in the family that I think genuinely cares about me as a person cares this, about me this, as a person as opposed to people who are supposed to care about me because we share blood uh this wouldn't happen to be the grandmother who insisted the mafia isn't real is it same one there we go <laughs> <laughs> and, um and let her have that one okay <laughs> little old italian lady look i'm this is not me trying to crush the world and, view of <laughs> of a dead woman um anyway the point being None, I think my father might be touching on dimension now, but we're like, but we're still, when I say touching, I mean like barely with a pinky. Yeah. I, I, we're probably going in that direction, but we're not anywhere near to where I have to be worried just yet. As far as other relatives, like I said, nobody close to me has ever gone through this. So it's not like I watched the father and I watched Anthony Hopkins play a man in the throes of dementia and go, Grandpa Mike, you know, or Uncle Frankie, you know, or, or you know, Grandpa Larry. I, none of those people. That's not what killed them. 
So that's not why it affected me. It affected me because Sir Anthony Hopkins playing a man going through the throes of dementia was legitimately sad and broke my heart. Like I said, from a general standpoint of view, not from a personal. Go on. So the movie itself follows, as mentioned, Anthony Hopkins as he plays a character named Anthony, convenient, who is an older gentleman who is going through dementia. Uh, there's some, and we follow some of his, um, some of what goes on here. He, there's one, uh, we see, meet his daughter, played by Olivia Coleman, who did not win Best Supporting Actress for this role, but should have. Oh, she won, like, all the awards for The Crown. It's fine. I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> the Crown's not interesting. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I have five, oh. I have, like, five seasons, four or five seasons of The Crown that says it is interesting, and Andrew Graham is going to be mad at you. Look, you can enjoy it all you want. I can only hear them discuss how people fold napkins so many times. Oh, move on. Tell me I'm wrong. I will on a different podcast. You have the person in charge who hired the country girl and she folds napkins thusly, but they're supposed to be done the other way. And he must talk to the it? queen have about this. Have you watched any season of The Crown? No, I don't need to. And shut up. Oh, this is the free guy <laughs> argument again. When you watch it, then complain. Go ahead. Yeah, but. The father. I'm not going to put myself through that just so I can complain about it with credibility. Uh, and she is keeping him at the moment at. Her house, he thinks it's his at various points in time. There's a man in her life that is alternately Rufus Sewell and Mark Gaddis. There's some debate about whether about him trying to they're trying to find another full-time caretaker for him. She wants to move to Paris with uh, Rufus Sewell. His name is depending on which part of the movie we're talking about, either Paul or James. And I don't mean that as a negative. Uh, so there's a little bit of drama on that. He doesn't want a full-time caretaker. He feels he can still take care of himself, and it becomes very, very clear that he can't. And there's a lot of specific context that goes into this. You have the, I can't go through it. The movie somewhat defies pure plot synopsis because you just go scene by scene, and then you may as well just watch the movie. Right. The closing sequence is him waking up in a hospital bed. He has been moved to a nursing home, a, a, a full-time care facility. And Anthony Hopkins going, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Where's my daughter? I was in my flat just an hour ago. What's going on? And leads to him breaking down in tears, unable to fully process what's happening to him in the world around him. Going, I want my mommy. At one point, yes. I want someone to come pick me up from this and take me home the very end of the movie he is utterly distraught and broken and crumbled crying i want my mommy and the nurse is just holding him saying let's go to the park it's such a nice day let's go to the park and walk and the nurse is kind of looking out the window and she's realizing she's holding an 80 90 year old some odd broken demented old man and she's just trying to get him through the next 20 minutes and you won't look you won't remember this in an hour it'll be okay but and, you know and that's the kind of that's the kind of dark humor that you get if you live with this she is a professional nurse but she has to have a very human moment with this very human sick person and 
you can tell that she really cares about him from a you know a professional standpoint that's what she's there for she's there to care um but it's heartbreaking for her to have to sit there with this person and so it's heartbreaking for the audience and like i said you didn't have to go through it personally to have your heart and soul crushed at the end of that movie because like i was okay through a lot of it you know there's enough performance in the movie and enough unreliable narrator stuff going on to keep me invested and interested in the teleplay but then you get to that scene and i and i just i i'm tearing up now i lost my freaking mind with that scene i the look on her face and anthony hopkins you know reduced to what he is going i want my mommy and i i was glad the movie was over i cried so hard i got a headache like I had to watch Titan season three after. Well, <laughs> that washed the taste out of my mouth. You'll cry after that, but for an entirely different reason. <laughs> yeah. What um, have I done with my life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I needed something stupid to focus on after it was the father's a little much. Um. Yeah. So I suppose story time with Robert very briefly. My maternal. The, the my side of my mother's family, my maternal grandparents. And so my mother, my, her sister and her brother. So one of my aunts, one of my uncles, uh, their, their family growing up was very close with another family close geographically to them. And they maintained that friendship through their entire lives. Uh, one of, uh, one of this other family's daughters has been my mother's best friend for over 50 years at this point. Uh, those family, they would, the, the associated children would routinely call the other set of parents, mom and dad. They were very, very close. And I, so I somewhat came into, you know, as myself, my brothers and you know, our families kind of, they maintain contact. So we have some contact with them. And the father in, of that particular family, a gentleman named Gene, uh, developed a, I forget how old he was. This is, you know, closer to 20 years ago than not, which makes me feel old as dirt. Um, he developed what was essentially Alzheimer's. They didn't call it that because the only test for Alzheimer's would come back negative, but it was Alzheimer's. He was a very intelligent, very dry-witted uh, man. He was a literal rocket scientist. And I have a fairly clear memory of not long before he passed, uh, when he was in hospice, he was in a hospital bed that they moved into their house. He, he got to stay with his family the whole time. He was never moved to a facility. But the, I remember some conversations with him that were a bit circular and a bit nonsensical. And again, I was a young teenager at the time. It's kind of a shame because after I stopped being a young teenager and all the associated negative qualities that go with it, I hear frequently from both my mom and from that family that Gene and I would have gotten along. We were very much alike. And it did he, he put complain it, incessantly about Marvel movies too? He he was fortunate enough to have passed before the MCU <laughs> took off. I imagine he would have. 
Okay. <laughs> Blessed soul. Um, if you want an example, I suppose, of how like delightfully concrete he could be, there's a fa- there, uh, there's a Far Side comic. If you're not familiar with the Far Side comic strip. But there's one that includes a scene of a bunch of cows standing on their hind legs, just hanging out, and then someone up on a hill goes, car. All the cows go down onto all fours, the car drives by, as soon as the car's gone, they all stand back up. And this is funny if you appreciate the far side sense of humor. When Gene saw this comic, he went, no, the, bi- the, the biological alignment and the physiology of cows does not allow them to stand on their hind legs. Which is true. <laughs> Which is true, but again... <laughs> Uh, so I, I have some memories of you know, interacting with him before he had passed on and my maternal grandmother whom I love dearly is 80 something at the moment I forget exactly uh, she her birthday is coming up actually uh, middle to the end of November uh, she has been going through dementia for the last few years and the last couple, it's gotten uh, it's not in, it's not um, it's not uh, completely gone, but it's uh, it, there are days, you know uh, there are some good days and there are some bad days. And she lives with at the moment my my aunt, my mother's sister. Uh, lives with her and is able to, you know, so she's not had to be moved to a facility either. But I can. There's a scene in this movie. So, so Sorry, the long story short, there is why part of this movie, you know, why I had to watch this movie in parts. I had to get to a certain part and go, OK, I need a minute. So pause. If I'd watched this in a theater, I don't know what I would have done. Like that. And which is not to say anything rash or crazy, but I don't know how I would have reacted if I didn't have the ability to pause, process, and then come back to it in a second. Like, I feel okay. like you'd have been like Katie Featherstone and just snapped the guy in front of you's neck. I yeah, and then ran like the Flash. <laughs> like it, something. So this, uh. This movie really hit. Uh, I've mentioned before, I don't have a tremendous amount of emotional buttons to push, but if you push one of them, boy, does it react. Uh, This thing, this one really, really got to me. And again, I think if we're going to, if we're going to talk about the most important thing about this, about this movie is Anthony Hopkins. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how he did it. Because I, I'm loosely familiar with Anthony Hopkins' process with his method because he's talked about it openly in the past. He doesn't do a tremendous amount of research. He tends to rely on the script. The script will tell you most of everything that you need to know. He uh, he also has essentially a photographic memory for words, and then he's able to discard them. So he... Uh, so again, I'm loosely familiar with some of his process as far as that goes. And his ability to do what people with this illness do, which is almost manic. It, it This is going to be a weird connection to make, but stay with me. Mm-hmm. It, it had almost new nightmare vibes for me. Yeah. Where you're almost afraid this is going to be permanent. It's so real. It's so 
visceral that like I'm afraid that he's going to get lost in the performance and never come out again. Yeah, yeah, I I I can see that. And again, to his uh, and that's to his credit as an actor mm -hmm. that he's able to do this. But people who have dementia will have the there's this, uh, the one scene in particular when he meets the the caretaker and he sees her as someone who looks very much like his second daughter who passed tragically in a car accident in some kind of accident. And he goes from outgoing and charming to very nasty and very insulting. And you do it in the space of a couple of lines and it's all seamless. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever spent time around someone who had a lot of time around someone who has something like this, they do this. And it's, it's off balancing because one minute you are talking with someone you care about, someone you love, and things are going perfectly well. And then the next year you were a mistake. I don't know why I didn't encourage your mother to have an abortion is something like that. I've never heard that one in particular, but by way of example, and it just can come like snapping your fingers almost, but it's not broken, right? Like it's not. Uh, going from talking about what's for dinner to global warming. There's right. always transitions. It's always smooth. And you always wind up going after the fact, how did we get, you know, how do you get from point A to point B? But it always makes sense along the journey. And him being able to flip that switch the way that he does is... Again, it's remarkable. It's unbelievably true to life. It's it's one of the great gifts, I think, of Anthony Hopkins as an actor. He has the ability to make you believe that whenever he says a line, that's the first time he's ever said it, which is what dialogue is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And he can do this regardless of the quality of material he's working with. And I don't know how he does that. I mean, again, I could guess, but... That's a remarkable gift, a remarkable talent to have cultivated. Um, he also, over the course of this movie, goes from, in some cases, like borderline intimidating to a pitiable, and I don't mean that negatively necessarily. Doddering. Doddering was the impression I got. Yeah. Like the scene where Mark Gattis slaps him repeatedly. Right. I was thinking more about the circular turkey it circular chicken dinner yeah there's that too like i need to here's the last thing i the other thing i wanted to say about this movie i suppose that I, I needed to say and bear with me a little bit for this because i'm gonna make a comparison that might not make a lot of sense uh this is the most effective horror movie i've seen in a long time it's funny that's two in the space of a minute that <laughs> where i referenced Wes craven's a new nightmare and yours going general horror but that's really funny actually uh, it, it is, but I mean, think about it for just a second. How many horror movies, even the ones that play around with, you know, possession or haunted houses or mm -hmm. the few reality-based horror properties that exist, how many of them are this effective at being unsettling? How many of them can give you a... Well, what I said about Nomadland, where the only, like, action sequence of sorts is the guy dropping a box <laughs> Yeah, and, and how effective, how more effective it is than any given action sequence I've seen this entire year. And so your your point is well taken that the, the, the sequence where that the caretaker comes into the house mm -hmm. and 
he's like, okay. He's a little bit like, no, I need to get dressed. I'm in my pajamas. I need to, I can't meet someone like this. You know, I met her. I like her. I can't, no one should, she shouldn't see me like this. And then she comes in and it's someone, and we've met this character ostensibly. And just, it's someone we've never seen. Like that's chilling. Right. The scene where he walks in the, the very first time you're, you're given to the unreliable narrator perspective. Um, when he walks into the flat and he sees what we'll find out later is actually the doctor, but he's projected the image of the doctor on his daughter's husband. And so he's there. Yeah. He's just there. <laughs> and he's just chilling, reading the paper. And Anthony Hopkins is like, what are you, what are you doing in my flat? He's like, I live here. This is my flat, you know? And it just sort of goes down from there. And then, moments later his daughter walks in but it's not his daughter it's what we're going to find out later is the nurse yeah and like you said it you know horror as we've talked about should be unsettling unnerving it should make you it should make you feel uncomfortable it doesn't always have to be about a, a guy being stabbed multiple times in the back with a knife and then selling the piece on etsy you know or you know a a ninja slicing an entire cell full of women to bits you know while doing the neutron dance it, it doesn't have to be those silly things it can be the is this my house is this my beautiful wife or is it or isn't it you know it can be i mean i think the loss of one's faculties is probably the most generally accepted nightmare for most of the human race, the, the possibility that you no longer have any sense of what's going on around you. You know, people talk about things like vertigo and stuff like that. Imagine it. Imagine you not only don't know which way is up or down, but you don't remember the people around you. You don't know what time of the day it is. You don't know where you are, you know, and people are talking at you as, as if you should remember all of these things and you just don't. And what a horribly frightening, nightmarish reality that is. Yeah, I, I don't categorize this as a horror movie. Um, and how you choose to categorize film in that respect is a long debate in and of itself. I, most Earthlings would categorize this as a drama. There's no debate about that. Ditto. Again, I'm saying I'm not because I think a horror movie's primary goal is to scare you. And I don't think that is this movie's goal. I think it's a byproduct. No, but the notion that you could end up like this guy, this this yeah. guy's condition is generally accepted a possibility for any number of people in the human race. It's terrifying. And there are people Look, going gonna, through this I'm right gonna, now. I'm going to share something about my dad real quick. All it's right. not going to take me long. Um, but it's it, it's thinking about this out loud. It reminds me of something that my dad has said, and he was 100% serious. It's probably not something I need to share in a podcast, but I'm going to anyway. My dad has said if he ever ends up anything close to Anthony, like Anthony Hopkins, just take him up back and shoot him. And that sounds like he's being facetious or sarcastic. He's being dead serious. Like, my dad doesn't want to live that way. You know, if he no longer has a connection to his faculties, and he's like that, where, where he doesn't know up or down, doesn't recognize people. He's like, I don't want to live anymore. Just take me to Oregon and have me killed. Yeah, there's, um, 
there's a sequence in a television series I'm rather fond of called Boston Legal. I thought you were going to say Hannibal. No. <laughs> there's a sequence where they build a tableau on the beach of human body bots. <laughs> there is one of those. In fact, they turn them into a totem pole, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, where one of the main characters is the, the, the court case essentially is putting the uh, invalid, almost invalid father of one of the other characters on a morphine drip. Like we would like to usher this venerable old man out of this world. He's had like a series of strokes. Like there's probably, like, and his daughter is of the opinion we should put him on a morphine drip and we should kind of be done with this at this point. Mm -hmm. And they go to court and there's an argument and, I mean, this, the whole, pre I mean, of course they go to court. The whole premise of the series is uh, the act of lawyering. And one of the characters when arguing about, uh, when arguing in favor of, you know, uh, essentially euthanizing this gentleman at this point in time, he references one of his dear friend, one of the other characters who has something. They jokingly refer, they kind of jokingly refer to it as mad cow disease. Um, uh, and he very eloquently articulates some of the problems with this particular, uh, with, you know, Alzheimer's and what it brings about. That when someone is lucid, the thought of ending their life is monstrous. But the insidious thing about this disease is by the time you... By the time a person gets to a point where they could, where they might rationally make the decision, I don't want to be here anymore, they're too far gone to make the rational decision. Right. Uh, and it, it is, it's a, it is a horrible, horrible illness to try and contend with. Because, you know, there's medication that can help, but there's only one end to that. I see a lot of uh, persistently mentally ill people in my profession. And I see a lot of people who are duly diagnosed persistently mentally ill and substance abusing. I have seen people go from rational to irrational back to rational again over the course of a few days due to illicit substance abuse. Um, when I first started uh, 10 years ago at the first jail I worked in, we would see people who were who came into the jail and they were perfectly coherent, but they were meth abusers. And then a few days after detoxing off of meth, they would lose their freaking minds. They would be utterly incoherent. They would be hallucinating. They would be combative and violent. And we would have to place them on a psychiatric observation for a couple of days. And then their body would finished detoxing they'd return to normal and you'd say to them so do you remember any of what just happened over the last couple of days where you were screaming bloody murder and you know throwing things and we had to put you in a restraint chair or any of that do you remember any of the no like the last thing i remember is i came to jail i was here for a day and then i woke up and i was in the turtle suit i woke um, up three days later in the suit <laughs> yeah and i don't know how i got here and i'm like okay Guard, would you kindly explain to me what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. How, how did we get here? Um, and that's, you know, as a professional, it's something we deal with on an ongoing basis. Um, can you imagine being that person and how scary? I mean, imagine just waking up. I mean, I 
look, I've had over the course of the last couple of years dealing with cancer, I have had a handful of surgeries and there was the one time where they were doing the first biopsy where I almost died on the table. And I, and apparently I was fighting so violently while, you know, being unconscious, I pulled out whatever the thing is to keep me unconscious. So I woke up like in the middle of it and I didn't know where I was. And I had a thing down my throat and I couldn't talk and my arms were strapped to the bed. And I woke up that way. I woke up immobile, not knowing where I was, why there was a thing in my mouth. And all I could see is, and I turn and I see my wife and my mother and like no one's and like no one could explain to me fast enough what was happening. And the next thing I knew I was out again. And I woke up the next day in the ICU with again, a thing in my mouth and my hands tied to the bed and me going up like this and like trying to motion to the nurse and the nurse going like, <laughs> and me thinking about the Joker from the dark night in the hospital. I'll let you all, <laughs> I'll let you all put that one together. Um, so, I mean, could you only imagine that just being your natural state of being forever? Yeah. I, I want to give a lot of credit to all of the acting in this. Um, but Olivia Coleman just, she's fine. There's a, hang on. There's a look mm -hmm. that you get when you're around people with dementia or something adjacent. And it's a, it's a hard look to pin down, mm -hmm. but you know it when you see it. Okay. It's, it's equal parts sadness and anger, a little bit of anger. Um, I would imagine it's feeling helpless. Helpless, a little bit of hopelessness, a little bit of... I thought I was already at rock bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a, I've seen that look on people and it's a, again, it's not something that is impossible to fake. Obviously this is an acting performance, but getting that look right. Just some of the looks that she has on her face. Like when she's, there's a shot of her just in the car as it's driving away. A, a taxi is like driving away from the hospital. And just she's not doing anything other than looking out the window. There's not a single line of dialogue spoken. But everything you need to know is said on her face. The scene where she has to watch her father be verbally abusive to her while he flirts with the nurse. Yeah. That is a rough scene to watch i think the master stroke in sir anthony hopkins performance is the ability to come across as both sympathetic and detestable mm -hmm. in the same scene throughout the entirety of the motion picture yeah that and you can see it again if you if you've been around someone like this you know what you tell yourself when this happens tell yourself it's not them that's not my father because it's not some whatever's going on in his brain has killed part of who he used to be or it's it's torn down the filters uh, again this kind of goes I, this kind of depends I, on how far this depends on how far the disease has progressed i tend to believe in in that there's a lot of 
unvarnished hostility in people that is tapered down by relationships and affections and social contracting and you know the need to succeed but you strip it all away and you and you see the the true self and it's a very negative hostile thing I, i'm not saying you're entirely incorrect there mm -hmm. what i am saying is Again, once this once a disease like this progresses to a certain point, whoever you talk to, whenever you go, like if they're in a facility and you go visit them, mm -hmm. they may not know you, right? And they may not remember so many formative things about their life. They may remember other things. They might remember half things, and to the point where, and, and hang on, think about that. Think your your personality is an evolution over years of development. Yeah. What happens when those years of development? dissipate you yeah, revert you, you wind up again you're talking to someone who is not whoever they used to be right and that's a it's a common thing and i mean there's a scene very early on where she fantasizes about strangling anthony hopkins yeah well let's be very clear she smothers him with a pillow uh yeah it's and it's an ugly thought. Sure. But let's not pretend, again, anyone who's been around any any person like this. Dude, I have not a day that goes by I don't want to strangle people in our net network chat. That's true. <laughs> I, I sympathize. You've thought about it. If, look, a, if you if you've if you've had plans to kill Cameron Diaz, I guarantee you you've thought about strangling somebody in the network. I have never planned to kill Cameron Diaz. I don't think she, I, I'm. I'm going back in my head now. I don't think she's one of the people I've ever said I plan to kill. Maybe "planned" is too strong of a word, but there. But the, there was definitely conversations about this on our podcast. Uh, again, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm no, sorry, it wasn't Cameron Diaz. It was Margot Robbie. That one might. Yeah, that that's entirely. That's much more feasible <laughs> okay. as I think about it. Something I just remembered this with the Suicide Squad review that we did. Um. But yeah, it's it, it's just a human reaction to this, and mm -hmm. there's another. Um, there's so much about the writing of this movie and the performances that go with this that get everything about these interactions right. It's a lot like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's very stagey, like this it, it is. one night in Miami, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. There was a slew of movies over this past year that were adapted from plays that I almost feel like, could you have just left them as plays and been done with it? We Did these need to be... Here's the thing. I'm glad this was a motion picture that I was able to watch at home and that we're now able to talk about. I'm not saying this was a unworthwhile experience. What I'm saying is I wish someone had just sent me a copy of the play. I don't think putting it, committing it to film served the narrative or the production any more so than the actual play. I, I felt that way, and I felt also that way about One Night Miami. I think that this movie makes the best of what it does in terms of mm -hmm. ad adapting from the stage to the to the screen. Mm -hmm. It's able to intersperse a few other cuts. It's able to make some things a bit more ambiguous. It's able to do some transitions that you couldn't do in stage. So I think this one maximizes the difference in medium, mm -hmm. uh, whereas other instances of going play to movie don't. Uh, yeah, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom you could have done as a play and left it alone. 
Yeah, I I think this one makes the most of again the shift without completely changing the story mm -hmm. that they're telling. You know, you couldn't get a cutaway in the play where the daughter fantasizes about smothering him. You couldn't have. Mm. You couldn't have Anthony Hopkins be slapped off by someone off off shot, right? So you're never quite sure was he actually slapped? Was he just imagining that? Um, you couldn't do a transition where he walks through a door and then just seamlessly goes into a hospital that he's hallucinating and remembering his daughter's death. I mean, you could, but it takes uh, a bit of work. Uh, again, this is about how can you maximize the difference in mediums, mm -hmm. and I, I think this one does. Uh, yeah, I don't, this is a small movie, you know, that's small cast. I don't have a bad thing to say about any of it. And Anthony Hopkins absolutely deserved the Oscar for this one. Look, I, I, I don't, I don't think I lament Chadwick Boseman's passing as much, as much as other people. I, I, again, I feel it was tragic and can, can we just be honest and say that if Chadwick Boseman looked like me or you, this isn't a conversation we're having a year later. Yes, we, we can be honest here. That's kind of the point. I mean, look, I'm not taking any. That's not a knock against his acting. That is no. not anything about his death. That is the simple statement that had Chadwick Boseman been anything but an African-American man, people are not going into social media apoplexy over not getting his, you know, his perceived due. Yeah, again, we we can be honest here and we can have potentially difficult conversations. And if you happen to be watching along live on any of the various uh, sites that we're streaming to, be that Twitch, YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter live, feel free to throw a comment in well, here and contribute. Well, it annoys me because, like, you know, when someone's, like, favorite actor dies, you know, suddenly that actor gets... It's not just actors, but we're kind of just focusing on that. They get elevated to the to, you know well past the point where they actually deserve the accolades being attributed to them, and I, and I just think it's ridiculous. Like, can't can't we look at people honestly? And like, I'm so I'm sad the man died. I but does this is that now all we're going to talk about with him? You know, he died and there he he died and was black and therefore deserves all the credit ever, and nobody can ever ever have anything else. Sir Anthony Hopkins can't be recognized for the great actor he is because Chadwick Boseman died in the same year. Like, that's a, that's a specious argument, to say the least. It really is. And it's the argument people made. It <laughs> even is the argument people made. Even if they didn't realize that was the argument they were making. Yeah, it just it drives me nuts, you know? Um, I I sympathize with that. That's a... When Denzel Washington and uh, Halle Berry of Catwoman fame... Um got their Oscars <laughs> got their Oscars and everyone was like oh training day absolutely deserved no it didn't Denzel Washington should have won for any number of films he should have been he's a phenomenal actor and has been in some amazing films training day wasn't one of them well his performance in training day I again I have you not heard my on trial no <laughs> of I, I think I've missed that one I described it as him pulling out his genitalia and whacking into the scenery left and right and hitting and hitting his co uh, his coaster over the head with it. That would be Ethan Hawke, if memory serves. It would be Ethan Hawke. I, I couldn't remember his name. Look, and, and it's not a bad performance. Just, you know, is it better than Glory or A Color Purple? He won, or... Hang on. First of all, he won for Glory. Did he? For, he won for... Best Supporting Actor for Glory. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's a bad example. Um, other, a whole bunch of other Malcolm X. Absolutely should have won for Malcolm X. I'd have to go back to that particular again. At this point, we're going. The argument becomes, who was who? What were the performances up against? And then that's right. a much more. Anyway, discussion. the argument was at the time, but he des- he deserved to win for Training Day, and it's like he didn't deserve to win for Training Day. I I'm glad he got the Oscar, and I don't think we should posthumously like take it away from him. But like that's not the year he should have won, but it's the year he did win because politics. Like um, Halle Berry, there's a much better argument for. I think it was Gods and Monsters, she or Monsters Monster, Ball rather. Monsters Ball. Monsters Ball. You know, she wins for Monsters Ball, and I think that was a superior film, of which she gave an outstanding performance. So no, no argument there. But Denzel Washington, the one stick that one sticks in my craw. Well, um, I mean, somewhat in a similar vein, I suppose. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio finally winning for The Revenant. Mm-hmm. Like, don't get me wrong, he deserved to win for The Revenant. I'm not at any point saying otherwise but the number of people who came out of the woodwork going he should have won for wolf of wall street Man. and he now and he now only won for trait for revenant because of that like no mm. not really right can we can we not give extra credit in the, you know after the year that they should have won at first i'm like either either do it right the first time or just move on let's like let's stop awarding people like well he, here's your here's your participation we, look we ha- the oscars have lifetime achievement awards mm-hmm. it you don't get an award for one performance that's supposed to cover everything else right otherwise otherwise yeah. you again you get a lifetime award right which is not which is training day it was like we're giving you this award it's a set or your body of yeah your you get body. This for your body of work, not for the performance that we're giving you an award for. And I'm right. with you. I think that's stupid. No, him humping the scenery for two hours and beating Ethan Hawke over the head with his genitalia is not worth getting an Oscar for. I'd as funny to, as it was. I'd have to double check the other... Again, I'd have to look at the other contenders. That Do you know who you think should have won off the top of your head for that year? Not a clue. All and right. look, if there's a non-trivial argument to be made that if he left the lo- the largest lasting impression... While also still acting and not being a, and let's be clear, he might have been overacting to a serious he degree. He was. <laughs> he was not. You know, he was not. Uh, you know, just a stiff on screen. There, if if uh, if people are interested, myself and Sean Comer reviewed Training Day and one of the early on trials, and you can hear my argument about why that movie is a little a little overblown but anyway we're here to talk about these three so i I would, ag- I would agree with you that it's overblown overrated 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 yeah i, I know what you mean I, I would agree with the general rating of that movie is a little bit beyond what it actually deserves it's it does not live up to its reputation if all you have is its reputation uh about the father um again small cast everyone gives a good performance okay here's the answer so Denzel Washington wins for Training Day. He's up against Russell Crowe for A Beautiful Mind. No, <laughs> Sean. I mean, like that one could have won. Could Sean have. Penn for I Am Sam mm. could have won, but I have issues with Sean Penn. Will Smith for Muhammad Ali and Ali. Nope, nope. <laughs> look, look, Will Smith deserves that nomination. Fine, I'm okay with mm-hmm. that. Win? Absolutely not. No. Uh, Tom Wilkinson for Doctor Matt Fowler and In the Bedroom. I haven't seen that one actually. Of all of this list, 
I, I think there are people who should who argued for Sean Penn and I am Sam. I probably would have gone Russell Crowe, a beautiful mind, but it's neither. Here. Um, it's been too long since I've seen I am Sam to for me to accurately rec- uh, give that. A, but based on my memory of Training Day and my memory of a beautiful mind, I might have gone Russell Crowe. But uh, uh, a, a beautiful. I have issues with a beautiful mind that other people don't. So. Hey, Johnny Depp was nominated in 2003 for Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the I know. Black Girl. Wait. I, I am aware of that. I mean, look. Oh. Hang on. Set aside what Captain Jack Sparrow became. <laughs> and ask yourself, look, because after that, everyone just told Johnny Depp, do Captain Jack. <laughs> right? That, that's all yeah. that's asked of him. But going into that movie... You'd never seen him do that before. It's a really good acting job that he does, and I think that was a fair nomination. Let's start to wrap up. Uh, yeah. As far as the father, I can't recommend it to too many people. I mean, you've got to be a serious you've got to be a serious film person, and I hate to say that because it seems so it seems so pretentious. But this is a movie that you've got to really like watching the nuances of acting writing how how certain scenes are shot and what that tells you like you've got to be into that or this movie is not going to be for you yeah it's, it's a well-made movie but I, I look i i always make the argument that movies should make you cry they should make you laugh they should make you smile they should make you angry movies should invoke a feeling i think the trap we fall into by and large is people only want movies to make them feel good yeah which is what drugs are for so <laughs> nothing, there's nothing happier than a heroin addict shooting up. All you want is happiness. So, you know, for those people who, you know, film as heroin. Okay. I, I don't watch the father for, for those people who want the full wide, you know, wide in breadth of the film experience and all of the emotional uh, invo- emotion invoking therein, you should absolutely watch the father. It would be, criminal for you not to it is an outstanding film i actually think it's the best of the three quite quite i i would agree with that believe it or not uh i I, don't know if it should have won best picture because more because it's a better movie than nomadland but more goes into making a movie than what went into the father and i think that's where nomadland ekes it out Again, you can, there's a debate to be had, and I would not have, having seen all of them, having seen both of them now, again, my mm-hmm. art, you ask me which one I think is better, I think The Father's a better film. You tell me you think Nomadland is, that's perfectly reasonable. I'm Again, that neither of those is a hill worth dying on. You should. Here's the thing, cinematography is part and parcel of the film process. The cinematography in The Father is nil, it's a guy in a flat. And so there are. That's not, hang on. That's good, not to say. There's good direction. There's great shots. There's good use of the medium, as you were talking about a few minutes ago. But when you compare, not to be funny, but when you compare the vistas and the landscapes of mm-hmm. Nomadland to Guy in English Flat, I that's that's All for right. me. We're, we're, we're talking about winning by a nose at this point. Yeah, again, it does. You're you're arguing whether or not you prefer. Again, some of the other film craft elements that went into Nomadland, or you prefer something that leans a little bit more heavily into the acting with better writing that you would get in The Father. Like it's, it's just a matter of preference at that point. At which, mm-hmm. and again, at that point, it's 
you disagree. We shake hands. We move on. There's there's nothing stupid that was said that can be made as far as the arguments go. I will tell you, I think so. Here here's where it breaks down for me. I think Nomadland deserved to win Best Picture. I think the father deserved to win Best Screenplay. I'd agree with that. I I tend to think the screenplay for Nomadland is look. Again, a giant chunk of this is taking real people, putting them in front of a camera and saying, be yourself, and then being competent enough to not be wooden about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I swear, if I have to listen to one... Th there's that scene in Nomadland where she's like, uh, they're all she's working at Amazon and they're all having lunch together. Mm -hmm. And you have the person who's going over the importance of the lyrics that are tattooed onto their arm. Ugh. I wanted to put my head through a wall because I've had me that conversation. Me too. Okay, I, I... People, people with ink, if we don't ask, don't tell. If we do ask, keep it brief. And no one cares about lyrics. My boss recently asked me, like they, they changed my position at work. I would now work. I do something different than what I was doing before, and it involves me being around more of the staff. And he was like, what is your major objection to having been moved? And I said, where I was, I could ignore everyone I was working with and just do my job. And I didn't mind, like, I was in a chaotic environment, but the chaotic environment very rarely had to do with me, and I could tune it all out and didn't have to talk to anyone. Now I'm kind of, because of the way my job functions, I have to talk to my teammates, and, I, and I'd rather throw myself off the building. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like interesting and you went into a career where you have to talk to people <laughs> and i said we all make terrible mistakes in life um Look, just a point of order it did win best it did win best screenplay your response to that should have been mm -hmm. Look, I'm 45 at this point. I'm kind of pot committed. You just got to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so best original screenplay the winner was Promising Young Woman. Blah. Best adapted screenplay. The what? Hey, hang on. Out of idle curiosity, what else was nominated for best original screenplay? Judas and the Black Messiah, which should have won. Okay. Minari, The Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago Seven, which also okay. could have won. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say all of those are better original screenplays than Promising Young Woman. Just a thought. Yep. <laughs> By far. Uh. So adapted screenplays. The father went up against Borat. Um, Nomad Land, One Night in Miami, and The White Tiger. Well, I'm glad it won that. I, I get, I'm, I think ultimately I can live with where all of these films shook out as far as their wins and losses go. Mm -hmm. Again, do I disagree on some of them? Sure, but none of these are hills worth dying on as a general rule. So that concludes our discussion of high cinema because cinema, yes. dear hearts, is an event. And this one Tuesday, must, we have ascended. So you understand now that Mark and I are fully capable of discussing the nuance and the symbolism that goes into producing quality cinema. And this Tuesday, we're going to talk about the Eternals. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we're going to talk about the space gods Jack Kirby ripped off from DC Comics. Hang on, no, 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 you're doing that wrong. He didn't just rip them off from DC Comics. Who created the new gods at DC Comics? I don't remember. Jack Kirby. Oh, he ripped himself He's off. literally <laughs> doing a parody of himself. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, uh, yeah. I, and I imagine our discussion about the Eternals will be very different because Mark 
seemed to have enjoyed that experience. It did. I don't want to get into it now because I because we're at two and a half hours and I don't want to be on for three and a half. So we'll talk about this Tuesday. Alexis seems to have had issues with it. Um, we'll see what Dave thinks. But you know, I, I can, look. I hang on. I haven't seen it yet. I can tell you mm-hmm. part of my issue with it right now. The length. A runtime of two hours and forty-seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, it, it needed. Another Who pass. thought this was a good idea? It needed another pass through editing. We'll talk more on Tuesday, but um, this was this was good. We, you know, for the for the Alexis, I'll give credit where credit's due. Alexis was the one that was like, "Why don't we talk about the Oscar stuff?" And I kind of at the time was like, "Talk about what?" Um, but a year, almost a year later, and we have this triple feature. Um, I mean, this went well over the 20 minutes per film that I set out for that, but this this needed that this this Look, needed a two and a half hour runtime. Not all not all triple features can be our discussion of westerns. That was pretty much Bing Bang done. Yeah. Oh, for the um, record, just loosely related to that, you asked briefly about uh, with Cry Macho. Did Clint Eastwood just take the first cut, the first take that everyone did? Turns out. He kind of does about like three takes maximum per like he has a reputation as a director mm-hmm. that uh, he goes at a pretty brisk pace. He tends to be done with the filming day around noon. Nice. Uh, I, I, I mean, there's kind of a story that was thrown out there. Sean Penn, after two days of shooting Mystic River, called his agent begging him to get him out of the contract. <laughs> Clint was t- Clint Eastwood was taking like the second or third take that he would do. And Sean Penn's like, I'm not even warmed up by take two or three. <laughs> and it should say something that he went on to win an Oscar for that role. Sean Penn might want to take a little more wisdom from the old man. So anyway, um, I but I think, you know, almost a year later, you know, the wisdom of Alexis rings true that I think there's room to discuss both the the high stupidity of most films we deal with and the high art that occasionally rolls our way that we well, have some on. degree of interest in. We have found space to talk about the low stupidity and the high stupidity <laughs> <laughs> and everything. And you know, not as much in between because, as we've mentioned, the middle road is kind of eroding. But we are um, – Alexis and I will actually uh, take on some of the Oscar contender – potential Oscar contenders. We're going to do House of Gucci, which actually isn't out yet, but will be out shortly. Um, the Eyes of Tammy Faye and – Gosh, what's the other one? Um, Isaac Tamifei, House of Gucci, and Spencer, which actually comes out this weekend as we're recording this. Uh, sorry, next weekend. Next weekend. Next weekend. Um, I know that Jason wanted to talk about King Richard, which is also a Oscar contender, so we're going to wrap that into... That's uh, only an Oscar contender because people think Will Smith is a better actor than he is. So we're gonna we're we're gonna wrap that into a triple feature um, sometime soon, and we you know we've hit some other ones that are on the Oscar list this year, and we'll see how many more uh, we've potentially we, well, we've no, already done. The nominations will come out in a couple of more months, and then we'll know for sure. Yeah, I know. When I shared the list with Alexis, we had actually hit a bunch of them this year, so we should be we should be able to <laughs> we should be able to uh, promote along with the Oscars one or two podcasts besides Soul and um, Tenet and Mulan. Yeah, well, look, 2020 wasn't a great year for wide release. I mean, come on. Was 2020 a great year for wide release film in general? It was not. All right. So, um, also, so- Tenet should also Tenet should have won. <laughs> so, uh, this past week, we, uh, Jesse and Robert Cooper, 
Talk Eternals by Neil Gaiman. Um, we reviewed last night in Soho. Um, our Paramount yeah, activity next of kin review. The vi- the video is a bit of a mess. Um, if you if you watch it on YouTube, the audio is fine. It's it's completely intact. It's an hour of me and Robert lamenting Paramount Paranormal Activity next of kin, and then. 20 or so minutes of Sean revisiting the first four movies and then we do Rotten Tomatoes. If you watch it on YouTube, Sean's video is cut to pieces. Our our review is intact. His video is cut up to pieces and then the entire Rotten Tomato thing was cut because we, YouTube thought we were violating community standards like we do. Um, and I wasn't going back to fix it. So anyway, uh, so that's there. Uh, Wednesday, uh, myself and... Uh, Pat Mullen reviewed Dark Side of the Ring Season 3B. I talked about my personal history with XPW, if you're interested. And now I've done that. I never have to do it again. Uh, and in the no, evening you're, you're going to have to do it again. <laughs> in the evening time, yeah, in court, um, myself and Jessica Starcher and you're Robert not Cooper, wrong. Um, talked Ministry Moral Hygiene. On the March 2, Canelo versus Plant, which as we're recording this will be later tonight, uh, we have been re-releasing some old Canelo fights. We already had up the Billy Joe Saunders and the um, the other one from earlier this year. And then we just released uh, Canelo versus Triple G2, Canelo versus Daniel Jacobs. And as we're dropping this, Canelo versus Sergey Kovalev. So those of you all up in the archives. Um, we re-released our Chronicles of Riddick trilogy and um, just released today. Pride, Prejudice, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. We'll have live coverage of Canelo versus Plant. Robert will re- be re-airing the Everyone Loves a Bad Guy for Dexter in conjunction with Dexter New Blood. We have a re-airing of our Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. We'll be reviewing Titan Season 3, Eternals, as we've mentioned a bunch of times. Our annual Veterans Day show this year is myself and Andrew Graham talking Band of Brothers from HBO. Which, um, which part, the Pacific or the other one? The other, the, the original. Okay. Um, myself, myself and Alexis Haina are reviewing Chippendale Park Life. Ronnie Adams and I will be doing a late night review of Heels on Stars. Uh, Friday, we are re-airing our Rocky Four on trial and our Rocky Four soundtrack because Rocky I... Four is now back in theaters as a director's cut. Hey, hey, people, listen to me. Listen to me. Pay attention. If you are listening to this and it all... Uh, close to when this movie co- when this airs go see rocky four in theaters i want it to win the weekend just because i'm weird like that <laughs> oh, it doesn't have a lot of competition so yeah uh, i hope it be i think it'll beat the eternals and i dove out of this plane no parachute and left robert <laughs> robert winfrey and jesse starcher uh going what the hell happened to the pilot they will be doing a conversation with alexis Haina over the first season of what if good luck I have. I am debating scripting out an intro for that. Oh yeah. Okay. Robert, I, I, I was. If I'm going to do it, it's going to be a parody of the one that the Watcher gives at the start of each of those episodes. But instead of ending it with "What if," I'm going to end it with "How come." Okay. That's, that's the that's the other that's the other what if that's the other question that small children will ask you. I have to be up in five hours. Go. Five hours, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, that'll be fun for you. All right. I cover a lot of stuff over at 411mania.com. Professional wrestling a few days a week, uh, specifically but AEW's Dark Elevation on Mondays, MLW's Fusion Alpha on 
Wednesdays and WWE SmackDown on Fridays. I got done with SmackDown, put on the suit, and came here because I'm a professional and this was high class art. I asked my wife to bring me the goblet of wine and she, <laughs> she said I'm not doing the same bit twice. And she said I'm not doing the same bit twice. I'm tired of your shenanigans. And I'm like, fine, I'll get my kids to do it. She's like, good. That's what I wanted you to do in the first place and threw me out of the bedroom. Uh, it occurs to me as I sit here now, you had small children handing you alcohol. <laughs> yep. Like waiters. Oh, God. We were doing a skit. Demonetize. <laughs> <laughs> we were, it's a prop. We were doing a skit. There was no real alcohol involved. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I came from that. If you're interested in my thoughts on those events, go over to the wrestling zone of 411mania.com. Uh, Mark mentioned the Eternals review this coming week, so that'll be something. I'm going to, with a three hour runtime and the way my local theaters have apportioned out what time they choose to open the screens on the weekdays, I have to see this tomorrow at 11 a.m. Otherwise, it interferes with my entire day, Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> so there's that. That'll be something. Um, I host the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast if you're interested in the sport of mixed martial arts. Plug it in wherever you're listening to this and you should be able to find it. Last week was a review of UFC 267 and a preview of UFC 268. Speaking of UFC 268, Saturday, the reason I'm not doing a live watch-along thing for Canelo and Plant is because I will be covering UFC 268, headlined by two title match, uh, two title rematches, and Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler. Someone's going to die. I, I say that on occasion about matchups, and I will say it about that one every time I talk about it until someone dies. So if you're interested in that, I will be over in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. And this week's episode of the Ground and Pound show will review UFC 268 and preview and preview uh, UFC Fight Night. You've seen ESPN plus 55 headlined by Max Holloway and Yair Rodriguez. So I will give my full thoughts on that. If you're interested, please stop by. Please give the podcast a listen. I appreciate it. And on that note, Mark, I believe we have more, we have other high class things to now go about our day and begin investing our time into. I'm going to go home and have sex with my wife. <laughs> going to pull a Brock Lesnar, huh? <laughs> it's a line from Clue. Um, you've seen Clue, right? Not in a long time, but yes. It's the last line I think Michael McKeon says because they've accused him of being gay the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, I'm going to go home and have sex with my wife. And he thinks the character doth protest too much. And on that note, be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>